Welcome aboard to the Counter Vortex once again with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. And uh, today we're very honored to be joined by um, Gina Ann Tam, author of Dialect and Nationalism in China, 1860 to 1960, which was released last year by uh, what publisher was it again, Gina? It was Cambridge University Press. Cambridge University Press. As prestigious as it gets. Very good. And you're actually... Uh, you're actually in Texas. Yes, I am. Trinity University in San Antonio. Yes. Uh-huh. And uh, your book is basically dealing with how um, Mandarin, or you'll have to forgive me if I garble the pronunciation on any of these words. Don't worry. <laughs> Hutanghua, mm -hmm. as it's called in Chinese, correct? Yes. Became the official language of China or the official version of Han Yu, the language of the people of China, and uh, what has been its role in the development of China's national identity, uh, as well as that of the regional dialects or Fang Yan. Am I saying that right? Fang Yan. So pretty close. Pretty close. Fang Yan. Yes. Great. Which literally means languages of place, I understand. That would be the literal translation? Yeah, I, that that's how I would sort of break it apart and translate it. Yeah. Well, um, a question I've become very interested with through my um, interactions with the uh, Chinatown community here in New York, where there's um, definitely Fang Yen being spoken on a daily basis. And uh, I'm extremely impressed by the um, scope of your research. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this question and um, how you carried out your research. I guess you must have spent a lot of time in libraries in Beijing and probably also in provincial areas of China. Can you tell yeah. us a bit about this? Absolutely. Um, so what when I sort of began trying to think of what I wanted to do for um, writing my dissertations, this book is based on the research I did for my, my doctoral dissertation, I was I really wanted to understand the link between language and um, national identity, language and nationalism. And there's this story that is is often told about um, that link. And it's it's a global story. Right. And the idea is that um, we don't have nation states. And then um, a state or a government comes in, teaches everybody to speak the same language, and that foments a sense of national identity. And um, there's a book, it was written very, very long time ago, like 1950, um, that wrote about this in China. And 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 the, the scholar, John DeFrancis, like he's not super explicit about that, but that's sort of the, the narrative, right? The narrative is that we start with a bunch of languages, we have a sense of nationalism and we create that by creating by, by choosing one language and making everyone speak it. Right. Um, there's another book about France and the same phenomenon It's called peasants into Frenchmen. And that's that's sort of the narrative that is often told. Um, and so I just presumed I would sort of write a little bit about that. Um, and then I got to China and realized that this is a country that has an enormous amount of patriotism, right? It's very palpable. It's very real. Um, it's not unlike the United States in that way, I think. Um, and but very few people where I was living were speaking Mandarin, right? Um, I and um, to, to sort of um, jumps across to your to your last question. I actually did most of my research in the south of China. 
um, in Guangzhou and Shanghai, where really very few, like you, you can hear Mandarin, obviously, but it's usually in official spaces. It's not sort of the language you hear on the streets quite as often. And so I was like, something's missing here. There's a, there's a, there's a part of the story that's not being told. Um, and that is how I ended up coming to want to look at this link between language and nationalism by not necessarily focusing explicitly on Mandarin, though I do talk about it a lot. Um, but instead looking at how this idea that nations have languages and languages belong to nations would affect all of these other languages being spoken in China. Okay, what was the name of the book that you mentioned written back in the 1950s, which you're kind so, of uh, re replying to? Yeah, so the book is John is written by John DeFrancis, and the name of the book is, oh gosh, it's like Language and Nationalism in China. I want to make sure I get it right, though. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, I think it's just called Nat either nationalism and language in China or nationalism and language reform in China is the name of it. Okay. Well, a lot has happened since the 1950s. Yes. I mean, you actually, uh, even though your, your title says dialect of nationalism in China, 1860 to 1960, you actually bring the story pretty much up to the present day. So uh, did you spend a lot of time in, um, you know, um, digging through the stacks in libraries in, uh, I guess, both in, in Beijing and in, Guangdong and so on? Yeah. So um, so the reason I brought it up to the present day is because I, I thought that there was a lot of history that I was covering that I felt particularly um, palpable in the present. Um, so uh, the sort of the last epilogue of my book was just kind of a pastiche of stories that I thought were really fascinating at the time. I have a feeling they're going to seem really dated within a few years. Um, but at the time, they 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 felt like a very sort of like living testament to this, the narratives I was um, looking at in my book. Um, but the heart of it was archival research. So um, I did a lot of sort of digging through actual archives and looking at, at government documents mostly um, in uh, Guangzhou, which it, we would call that city Canton in English, right. um, and then Shanghai. Uh, and the reason for this was twofold. Um, one is it was a sort of... Um, of the places where sort of connection to local language was was like I think most historically palpable were those two areas, right? And they're part of them is because they're big urban centers, right? And so they have a long a, a large sense of linguistic identity. The other was purely practical. Um, it, when I did the archival research for this book in 2013-2014, those were um, the most open archives I could find in particular for stuff after 1949. Mm. Um, and so there are like, and, um, like there are national archives in China. Um, there's there's one in Beijing. The number one is in Beijing, and the number two is in in Nanjing. Um, but those archives tend um, it's harder to get access to stuff after 1949. Um, that this has changed since then. Um, I don't even know what the situation is like now. But in 2014, um, the Shanghai Municipal Archives let you look at almost anything. Um, they didn't let you print everything, but they did let you look at almost all of their holdings. And in Guangzhou, um, I only got like one or two documents denied when I was requesting, which um, for people who've done archival research in China, that's a really, really, really good rate of return. Um, and so that was the main reason. And and in chapters four and five of my book, I talk a lot about this government-led survey of Fangyan and the archives had like explicit notes um, from those surveys, which was really cool to read. All right. Now this was uh, the survey which took place when in what era? 1954. So this was the, a, a nationwide right, yeah. government mm -hmm. 1954 survey. Um, 
And so, yeah, so archives had some great stuff. Um, I did go to Beijing for a bit, mostly spent time in the library where there's some really, really good old books that have been published and such. Um, and the other archive that I spent a lot of time in is I, I spend a lot of the book talking about this one particular linguist named Yunren Chao or, or YR Chao or Zhao Yunren. Um, and um, his personal papers are held in Berkeley, California. Um, so I spent a fair amount of time digging through his diaries and letters ah. and all that stuff. <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. And he was from which era? So he was born in the 1890s um, and was very active in the national language movement from the 1910s, um, a little like 20s and 30s. Um, and then he did some of the first uh, Feng Yen surveys um, that we still read and use today. Uh, and then he... Uh, Gosh, he fled with the nationalists to Chongqing when the Japanese invaded, and then from there went to Hawaii and then was hired at Berkeley, where he taught uh -huh. until he retired, and then soon after that passed away in the 1980s. Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. Um, it's been said that the difference between a dialect and a language is that a language has an army. I'm sure you've heard that line. Yes. So uh, are the Feng Yen actually separate languages i mean some of them seem to be as distinct from each other as say spanish and italian should chinese actually be considered a language group more than a a, a language in your view so I, the short answer to that is yes um there um there's a lot of debate about this among different disciplines i want to stress that i'm a historian so i'm a little bit less invested <laughs> in um in like is this correct is this right like like where do we draw the lines and and i'm more interested in in sort of where we draw the lines and what that says about us um sort of culturally and in terms of of political and cultural power um but i think that a language group thinking about it that way i think solves a lot of the misconceptions that we get when we sort of make this big like dichotomy between language and fangyan or language and dialect um and part of that is because what a fangyan is is really complicated um it's a really big category and it includes a lot of very different very distinct things um so sometimes you get people who will say, well, Fangyan is a misnomer, right? We should just call them languages. Um, but the problem is, is that we're, we're bringing together sort of like widely spoken like tongues, I guess, um, like Cantonese, right? Which is spoken by tens of millions of people worldwide and really does have its own distinct grammar and vocabulary and pronunciation. And then like what's spoken in say the city of Qingdao, right? Um, or Qingdao Hua. Uh, so we add a Hua to the end of, 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 of the, of, so like Shanghai Hua and these things that just mean spoken language of, right? Um, where it's like, it certainly sounds very different from Mandarin, um, but is much closer in terms of vocabulary um, and and grammar and and sort of more importantly, like there's this question of mutual intelligibility and that really exists on a sliding scale. Um, so as as a person who learned Mandarin in adulthood, um, I struggled a little bit in Qingdao, but I think for for native Mandarin speakers, it sounds maybe perhaps like um, an English speaker hearing someone with a really, really, really thick Scottish accent trying to, you know, sort of say things and stuff like that with specific Scottish vocabulary and stuff like that. Um, and so, um, and then you have things like Be Beijinghua, right? Which is like Beijing saying that like, we have our own Fangyan, which is distinct from Mandarin. Right. And there the differences are really quite slight, right? They are there, but they're, they're, they're quite slight. Hmm. And so all of these things are called Fangyan, 
Um, and I just don't think the language dialect dichotomy fits into that. But if we call Chinese a language group, then there's space for talking about the fact that, hey, there is a sense in which all of these different languages or dialects or accents or whatever you want to call them, um, that they all do have, to some extent, they're tethered by a similar script, right? And they have a connection historically. Um, and so because of that, right, like we can we can think about them all being connected in one way or another to this idea of China. Um, and without necessarily creating this hierarchy between there's Mandarin and then there's everything else. Mm -hmm. Well, I uh, hear in New York City's Chinatown, uh, I hear Cantonese uh, or Yue, I believe it's called, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Yes. And um, it's subvariant Toysan mm -hmm. and Fujianese. Mm -hmm. among the the more recent immigrants uh but i assume that you know uh, there are a great many smaller um regional variations as well in china so how many how many feng yen are there would you say across the country oh gosh i'm not sure i could even give even close to an accurate number um what i will say is that most scholars tend to agree that there are somewhere between six to nine nine is the count that i hear most often of um like sort of feng yen regions right so you mentioned the yue um usually we would call the yue a feng yen region which would include like standard cantonese that's spoken in like hong kong and guangzhou but also taishanhua or toisanhua right uh toisanhua i'm not my cantonese is very poor so please forgive me um and um right and so those would be like part of the yue feng yen right um region and so then there's 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 several of those a handful of those the most i've ever seen is 10 um, but usually nine, six to nine is, is the number there. Um, but within that, it depends on how much you're willing to sort of slice and dice things. So I, I did a lot of interviewing uh, linguists and dialectologists in China, and they would often be really proud. It's like people thought all of these were the same fangyan, but actually they're two different fangyan, right? And so there's there's more and more of these sort of like like linguistic um, um, separations that are happening that makes it kind of impossible to count them, I think. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then there's the whole question of, of Mandarin, mm -hmm. which is based on the, the Beijing uh, variant of Chinese. So could Mandarin itself kind of ironically be considered a, a Feng Yen? So that's a fascinating question. And I, and I think the answer is kind of yes and kind of no, right? So like on the one hand, in the 1920s, we, we um, more, not we, not me personally, but like yeah, yeah. a group of people, right, um, come together and say, we think the national language should basically be the language of Beijing. Right. Um, and when they do that, right, they are more or less taking an existing language and they're making it something else. Right. They're giving it a new name and they're calling it Guoyu. But I would argue that in the process of doing that, you're giving it structures that make it more than what it was before. And so like to get sort of like kind of like, I, I guess, like um, really abstract about this. Um, is that is not even all that abstract. I don't know why I said that. Uh, but um, so when you when you call something a national language, all of a sudden you're teaching it as a national language, which means that you are making, say, books for school children. And when you do that, you are calcifying a grammar that you say this is correct and everything else is not correct. Um, and there is a point at which when we're doing that, right, like this is how it's pronounced and everything else is incorrect. And when you start doing that, you are more or less separating it out 
from what it is just being spoken on the streets. Um, and when we get into the like the 1950s, they're actually very explicit about this, that like they'll, they'll have this great little Q&A that's circulated among teachers and teacher schools and they're like, is like Putonghua or is Mandarin just Beijing language? And they're like, no, it is not. And here's why. And their main reason is that it, <laughs> from their argument, right, is that the national language absorbs the best of all of the other regional fangyan. Now, how much is that actually happening? That's really debatable, right? Um, but there is a sense in which they're trying to argue and, and in sort of the process of making something in national language actually doing, making it into something else. Right. Um, another example of this is that if you look up the definition of Putonghua or look up the definition of, of standard Mandarin today, um, it will say that it takes as its base grammar and vocabulary um, vernacular literature from the 1920s and 30s. A lot of the men who were right and women who were writing that literature, they were not from Beijing. Right. They were using neologisms and they were using like new vocabulary and things that came from all over. So there is an extent to which this language being taught, the language, the Mandarin that I learned, right, when I started learning Mandarin, um, is not exactly what was spoken in Beijing exactly in the 1920s, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, I believe you used the term Guo Yu, which yes. means national language. Yes. And before that, you also had um, something called Wen Li, which yes. is like the more classical Chinese of um, of scholarship. Yeah. Uh, so how were how how was Wen Li related to uh, Mandarin? That's a great question. Um, so what's sort of interesting about Wen Li or Wen Yan Wen is another way we would call this um, in 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 English we'd call it classical Chinese, right? Is that it is primarily a written style rather than an oral style, and because of that, it is often sort of divorced from the question of like which Feng Yan does it belong to? Does it belong to Mandarin, right? Because when we talk about Mandarin, we are primarily talking about pronunciation. Um, in, in this particular kind of guise. Now we could talk about sort of grammar and vocabulary, but when we're talking about what is taught as classical Chinese today, um, there's no Fang Yan today really that uses that same grammar um, or uses the exact same vocabulary. Um, so, um, and this gets complicated, right? Because there are some verbs or nouns that are used in classical Chinese that are more common in other non-Mandarin Fang Yan, so like Cantonese and Shanghainese and such. But Basically, when we in the midst of this sort of national language movement, you really have people simultaneously saying that classical grammar, that classical vocabulary is not relevant to us anymore. It's an entirely different kind of thing. Um, to me, the best corollary to think about this um, at coming at this is like from a Western perspective or Western audiences as Latin. Right. And so, for instance, like what is the relationship between Latin and, say, French? Spanish, Portuguese, right? Like there is a connection, um, but I don't think we would say that any of them are sort of like, um, like more closer to Latin than others, right? Like all of them evolve in these kinds of things. And so, and the fact that Chinese- Well, script, I mean, Italian is definitely closer to Latin than, than those others, I would imagine. Well, that may be, yeah. I actually don't know enough about romance languages but, um, to say. <laughs> would, would, would the Wen Li today have the same kind of um, status in China that, you know, Latin has in the West, where it's well, kind so of, um, it's just kind of considered a relic and it's only the realm of real specialists? 
Yes, basically. I mean, most school children have to learn a little bit, which is interesting because I Mm. think there was a time in which in sort of European and American education where people did learn Latin and some people still do. Right. But it's not seen as like a language that is spoken. And that's the same here. So all all school children in China have to learn a little bit of basic classical Chinese, um, mostly so they can read old stuff. Um, And so um, and so that still has that similar status, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that um, survived even through the Maoist era? Yeah. Um, well, so, ooh, that's a great question, actually. And now that I'm thinking about it, I don't know if, say, high school taught classical Chinese in the 1950s and 60s. I have to imagine some people learned it, right? Because there are still people doing um, or reading classical stuff during the Maoist period. And what's even more complicated is that after 1966, you don't have a lot of formal schooling going on at all, right? Um, but these not this like knowledge base doesn't get lost, right? Um, and there there is a sense in which like there the, the Maoist period can get really complicated because there is on the one hand this iconoclastic idea that like everything old is bad, right? But on the other hand, you have this very fierce sense of nationalism that like Chinese is good because we are fighting against Western imperialism. And that sort of latter idea um, makes it so that you do have men who had built their whole careers on studying antiquity that really do make it through even the Cultural Revolution, right? Um, that 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 isn't necessarily a death sentence. It's it's about interpreting it in the right way, right? Rather than um, just being a scholar of of sort of right. class, right, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll definitely we'll bring the conversation back around to Mao, but let's uh, now get into really really deep history. Sure. As you as you document. Scholars have actually been grappling with this dilemma in China since the Tang and Song dynasties. And even the Han dynasty some 2000 years ago, mm-hmm. there was a form of um, philology. It was kind of a an outdated word. I think philology has kind of been superseded by linguistics yes. um, that, that, that developed back in um, the classical era called, um, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Xiao Shui. Yeah, that's pretty good. Thank you. <laughs> so what, what was the basic idea behind this? So the idea behind Xiao Shui, so if we, we actually look at the characters of Xiao Shui, it literally just means like minor study or like small study. So like it's, it's the idea behind it is that it was generally considered the kind of minor or more detailed area of study. Um, and it was juxtaposed against Da Shui, which just, which we would today translate usually as great learning, but we can also see like big, lear- like it, we would call it great learning. We wouldn't call it big learning because that sounds kind of silly. But the idea is that like Da Shui is like the really core important big ideas and Xiao Shui is kind of the minutia that, that, that exists around um, the outsides here. Um, and so, and especially in the study of the core ideas of Confucianism, right? So in the Qing dynasty, however, um, which is our last dynasty, it begins um, in the in the 1640s and then ends with the Republican Revolution in 1911. Um, so during that, you have sort of a group of scholars that that believe that these sort of like small study methodologies, um, which include things like philology, right? Or include things like the study of historical phonology, paleography, looking at how characters evolve, right? Um, that these things actually matter, right? And they they matter 
as much as sort of like the great learning. Um, and so for the purposes of my work, the reason that this mattered, I thought anyway, was twofold, right? The first is that the like the Qing dynasty emphasis on Xiaoshui, which again has existed for a long time, right? But you have in the Qing dynasty sort of this idea of like this should be on par, right? Um, and and the reason that this is to me interesting is because with this like emphasis on Xiaoshui methods, you have some really sophisticated ways of studying how sound evolves over time um, and, and, and what things sounded like in the Tang Dynasty and Song Dynasty um, in a way that, that there's a scholar named Benjamin Elman who would say that we ignore this at our own peril. And I really do agree with that, right? That there's, um, I, I wanna stress that I am not a Qing Dynasty philologist, um, but there's some really fascinating and sophisticated stuff going on, right? Um, and the other reason that I think this is interesting is because what they introduce is this idea that the meaning of a word is reliant upon the way something is pronounced, which means that if we want to understand what was being said in the Analects or the book, like the Book of Songs or these really, really old texts, we can't just pretend that these the script exists in a vacuum, right? That um, that these scripts represented sounds that were being used at the time, and that that is really a core piece of information for understanding what things meant. Um, and so that that is sort of what this idea, like where this where these methodologies come from. Uh, the third reason I think it matters is because I think that there are some people who would argue that like in the 1910s and 20s, everyone's like, Xiaoshui doesn't matter anymore. And that's just demonstrably false, right? People still very much rely upon this scholarship. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, the first um, study of the Feng Yang took place in the first century during the Han Dynasty, I would assume? Yes. Uh, by the scholar Yang Xiang. Did you actually read this? Are there copies available? So yeah, there are copies available. Um, it's and I I would presume they're reproductions. <laughs> I mean, I know they're reproductions. Right. Well, of right. course. Yes, yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 But no, there absolutely been reproductions of this. Um, and extensive scholarship and commentary on it. I will say it's a little bit more like a reference book than a book you would read. It's like yeah, here's yeah. this right. word and here's how it's pronounced. So I I'm, I I will cop to the idea that I did not read every single entry. Well, yes, um, but of I course, did. I did. Yeah. Well. No, but I spent time with it. Um, and I spent time with scholars who looked really deeply into what he was trying to do um, and and how to read it, right? Because I think the first time I came across this was my very, like a second or third year of graduate school. And I'm like, oh my God, what do I do with this, right? Um, but, um, but yeah, there's a lot of scholarship on this and a lot of reproductions of it. All right, so the reproductions have been printed recently or? Uh, so there's, there's, there are reproductions, I think, um, if I'm wrong about this and people hear your podcast, please forgive me, but I'm fairly certain that the first copy I read it from was in a digitized version of what's called the Siku Trenshu, which was a essentially a big project done in the 18th century where the emperor had a bunch of scholars bring all of the important texts. It was a it was a combination of like big library project and also a fair amount of censorship because you're choosing which books get to include in this big giant library project and which books we don't include right um but i'm fairly certain so you can get a digital there's there's digital copies like my 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 graduate institution stanford has has a digital copy um and of the siku trenshu so every book in that right and so i think that's the first place i read it um but there's also um 
I think the the sort of like commentary that I read it, I think was in the last 10, 20 years. I'd have to look at the exact date on it. Um, but yeah, so you can get printed books of like, here is the reproduction and commentary on it. And then you have these old digital copies that are clearly from the Qing dynasty because they have like, they're, they're written in script and stuff like that. Uh-huh. So do you know if, if there's any uh, copies of the original from the first century that survive? I'm fairly certain no, but yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm fairly certain no. Right, I, right. I think that it would have had to have been written on like bamboo strips for it to yeah. survive. And, right, and I right, don't right. think so. No, I think that it has been reproduced. Okay. In the, in the Qing dynasty, dynasty, the last imperial dynasty, uh, a new approach developed called, again, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Kao Zeng. Can you say a little bit about this? Sure. So Kao Zeng is, is how we would pronounce that. Um, and me. so- yeah, so the ZH is like a J sound. Um, huh. it, no, some there are some like phonetic cessations of Chinese that are not immediately like obvious. Obvious, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the ZHs and the Xs are not immediately obvious. Right, um, right. But so Kaozhong, we would normally like translate that as evidential research, which in like very broad strokes. Um, focused on critiquing previous interpretation of classical texts, um, which which critics would like. So the Kaozhong critics would say, like these previous interpretations of, of classical texts from the Song Dynasty, in particular, um, are really based on interpretation. They're speculative. Um, they're they're grounded in these ideas about metaphysics, um, and we're losing sight of like the evidence from the like Zhou, Qin, Han dynasties from like, you know, millennia before. Um, and so the idea here was that um, you, you, um, you had to look at like very specific, in this case, like philological and phonological evidence. So you can see why like Kaozhong scholars would believe that Xiaoshui methods were really important, right? And so that's the connection there um, because they, they, they believed that um, these like Xiaoshui methods of looking at paleography and looking at um, and looking at uh, philology and phonol, like they made big phonological charts and stuff of like, this is how this thing would have been pronounced at this particular time, right? Um, that that fits in this idea that our interpretations of classical documents should be very evidence-based rather than sort of interpretive and and philosophically based. Mm -hmm. So a, a more modern approach. Yeah. And so I think for your listeners, what might be really interesting about this is that if you're not a historical, so if you're not a historical linguist and you're like, huh, oh, um, the existence of this school at all, right, pushes against this idea that a pre-modern, the pre-modern Chinese scholars were unscientific insofar as they did not care about um, empirical evidence. Um, this is a complaint we hear a lot in the modern period. And I think we like, sort of orientalist narratives will still push this of like there's western science and eastern science and western sciences and sometimes even i think people who like well meaning have well meaning critiques of like western science will be like it's too based in like x y or z whereas the eastern approach is holistic right there's this 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 dichotomy right um but to me the kaojung school shows that like no there are people in china who cared a lot about like empirical evidence right like that was something that was very important to them and and so this idea that there's an eastern idea and a western idea about science i think um really breaks breaks that apart. Um, there are some scholars who will go so far as to say that the Kaojong school um, really mirrors the enlightenment in Europe, um, that it's a similar kind of thing. 
to me, that's a little too much of a stretch, not because I don't see parallels, but because the Enlightenment, basically who is involved and how much power do they have? I think Europe, like Enlightenment scholars in Europe had a lot more power uh, than the than the Kaohsiung school, which and and also we're interested in bigger things, right? The Kaohsiung school, they're like, no, we really want to know what Confucius said, <laughs> right? Um, so they're really focused on the past in a way that I am not sure, like that the Enlightenment scholars are not, right? But but there is this sort of like attention to empiricism, I think, is something that that is very clearly parallel. And they're happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it was in the, the reforms of the, the late Qing era that um, there was the first uh, serious effort to try to impose a national language. Yes. Yeah. Well, so there's there's two answers to that, I think, um, which is which is which is always interesting. So. The first time that we get an emperor who's like, I'm tired of everyone speaking different languages. You all need to learn the same language. The first time we get that was actually in the 1720s. Um, but it wasn't for, I, I, I worry about calling that a national language. It's it's common in particular in Chinese language scholarship to say that that was like the first attempt at a national language. To me, to have a national language, you have to think about it in terms of a national citizenry where um and there's there's even sort of like a sense in which there's it's very capitalistic right that like in order to have this this modern industrious country that produces capital that we all need to have a common sense of identity and a common sense of stakes um in our nation state um the yongzheng emperor who put together this like first attempt at a at a at a common language did not care about that he did not care what farmers were speaking right he cared what his officials were speaking and he was annoyed that his officials couldn't understand him um and so he tried to he tried to impose that it was pretty unsuccessful um big revolt against scholars in the south who were like no our language is actually better than what you're speaking uh. of in the north and so um so I, I worry about calling that a national language that said it is precedent of trying to impose an oral standard at least on a small scale, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at least on an elite scale, right? Um, to me, sort of though, the first attempt at the idea of thinking of a national language in terms of modern ideas about citizenship, um, that is, we really get towards the very end of the 19th century um, when we have like really sustained and pretty panicked conversation about what constitutes a nation state and where China fits into that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if I understand correctly, there was one scholar who was kind of a um, a dissident against this sort of linguistic centralization and advocated against making uh, the Beijing version, at least the national language, Zhang Binglin. Yeah, so Zhang Binglin, he's 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 a fascinating guy, right? Um, I wouldn't say he was alone. There were a lot of people who agreed with him. Um, but the reason I talk about him a lot. Um, is because, so uh, to sort of set a picture here, right, by the by the time Zhang Bingling is really active, which is the 1890s to early 1900s, um, is that Ch- the Qing dynasty at this point had endured an enormous amount of war and defeat um, at the hands of European imperialists, right? So the first one was the 1840s, um, where uh, the Qing lost a war to Britain, Um, And then there are subsequent sort of like losses after that. Um, And the one that really starts to hit home and create panic among a lot of China's elites was in 1895. Um, The Qing loses a war to Japan, right? Um, And and Japan had embarked on this pretty 
pretty radically radical and fast track of what they saw as modernization, which they often equated in many different ways to westernization, right? The Qing had taken a rather different tack to this, right? They're like, we can modernize, but we there are we can maintain a lot of what we have, right? Like we can maintain our governmental structure. We can maintain our educational structure. We can make, we don't have to go and all learn English or Western science or math. And we don't need to, a constitution. Like we don't need any of that stuff. We just need guns, right? Um, but when the Qing and Japan go to war, uh, Japan wins. And that is a big deal to a lot of our Chinese intellectuals. Um, and so you have this, this sort of panic among a lot of elites of like, no, we need a really fundamental change to who we are. Um, and there's a lot of debates about what that looks like, right? Is it, do, do we follow the track of Japan? Do we create a constitutional monarchy or a constitutional republic that we model off of the United States, right? Do we all start wearing Western suits um, and learning Western languages, right? Like what, or, or can we do this sort of a different way? And what Zhang Bingling argues is that actually what will make us the strongest um, is to evoke sort of this romanticized ideal of antiquity um, that 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 um, this idea of sort of getting back to the roots of Han civilization is what sort of the key towards um, a a a powerful government would look like, right? Um, he was deeply anti-imperialist. He spent some time in Japan. He was pretty heavily involved in, in other sorts of organizations focused on combating Western imperialism. So he felt very strongly about that. Um, but he also very, very strongly that where China had in part gone wrong, um, and again, he was not alone in this, was that the Qing was run by, was 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 a dynasty of people who were not Han Chinese, right? They were Manchu. Um, and that the Manchus themselves were also an imperial power, right? And they had more or less sort of like driven the Han, majority Han population into subservience and had steered them in like a terrible direction, right? And so a lot of Zhang Bingling's ideas about what this renewed civilizational, right? Like bringing back antiquity into the present and these kinds of things, what that would look like was very ethnocentric. Right. It was very anti other ethnicities. He's very he's not subtle. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. There are others who are even less subtle than him. But to me, he's not subtle. Right. Um, so to bring this sort of back to language, um, he actually wrote a lot of like philological texts that were meant to sort of like look at the roots of language as they existed today. And he believed very strongly that that Han Chinese linguistic diversity um, was a was a was sort of like um, a a product of this antiquity in which like the 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 Han peoples had sort of come from and evolved, right? Um, and he oh, wrote sorry, about you say that again. The Han peoples had come. So so yeah, sorry, I, that was poorly put. He believed very strongly that like contemporary Fengyan were kind of like time capsules, right? In which we could find this original Han language that 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 existed at the sort of origin of Han civilization, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And by Han, I don't mean the Han dynasty; I mean the Han people. Right? right? Yes, Han yes, 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 yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so um, to sort of bring this back to to the national language. Um, he believed pretty strongly that there were 
some languages that had preserved that antiquity better than others. And given sort of the, 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 the sense in which he felt strongly about anti-Manchu politics and the Manchus came from the Northeast, um, that the language of Beijing had more or less been kind of like adulterated um, ah. by the fact that Beijing had been like populated and run by several non-Han groups, right? Um, also the Yuan dynasty, which were the Mongols, right? right, um, right. And so this, I know this feels, a, a, this, or to me anyway, maybe, this feels a little in the weeds, but this is something you hear a lot today, right? Is that Mandarin isn't real Mandarin, that people from Beijing are partially outsiders, um, or sometimes you'll get the sort of more positive spin on it, which is like Cantonese or Shanghai, not Shanghainese, that one a little bit less, but like the Wu language, which is the Wu Fangyan region, which is where Shanghai is, or uh, the Hakka language, or the um, Fujianese you mentioned, that they're the real Chinese because they don't have that connection to non-Han peoples who would occupy those areas, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a real sense in which we're almost conflating um, linguistic purity and ethnic purity. Um, and and like, those are these sort of like implicate, those are the, the implied um, sort of logic of these arguments. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, so John Bingley was pretty forceful. He's like, the language of Beijing should not be the national language. Um, and again, he wasn't the only one, but but that was that was how he argued that. Okay, and he was um, uh, tolerated in the academy, so to speak, or... Uh... <laughs> Depends on when. He spent a lot of time in jail. <laughs> ah, so right. The, yeah, yeah, so during the Qing dynasty, um, he was in jail, but not really for this. He was in jail because he was very strongly anti-Manchu. And during the Qing dynasty, you couldn't be very strongly anti-Manchu. So he right. went to jail. Then he went to Beijing. Or no, sorry. Then he went to Japan. Sorry, I misspoke. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then he spent some time in, in Japan where um, he did a lot of these sort of like historical philology texts and stuff like that. After 1911, he he is back in China um, and he continues <laughs> to write, right? Like he is... Um, and rather influential. So he had students that were incredibly famous. So if any of your listeners are um, familiar with Chinese literature, probably the most famous Chinese writer, like hands down is Lu Xun. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and well, he was a student of Zhang Bingling's. Right? Uh -huh, uh -huh, so, uh -huh. so Zhang Bingling was quite influential. Um, but yes, he did rub uh, the, Qing, yeah. uh, the Qing government the wrong way and he spent some time in jail. <laughs> All right, well, uh, we'll get to uh, 1911 and its aftermath shortly. Yes. But um, first, uh, still in the late Qing period, you write about the so-called gazettes or records of locality, yeah, which were uh, written in Fengyan, and then the okay. uh, the so-called vernacular periodicals, which were written in Baihua or colloquial language, which I assume often meant Fengyan. And some of these were kind of a consciously anti-Qing. So yeah. perhaps, you know, ironically, from today's perspective, the Feng Yen became a symbol of, of Han ethno-nationalism and resistance to Manchu rule. Have, have I got that right? Yeah. The, the only thing, I, the slight correction, is the, the gazetteers, um, these are, um, these, generally these were written by elites. Um, and so they were written in what we would probably call something closer to, like, like pretty easy to read classical Chinese. So um, so their grammar would have not been explicitly sort of like transcribing the way that Cantonese or, or Fujianese was pronounced. They did have these long sections though. So, so gazetteers to give a sense of, of what they were, they're kind of like almanacs, 
right? So, and they're written every so often um, in these sort of local areas um, where they would be like, here's our climate, here's our major like temples, here is um, the breakdown of our population. They also have really long sections about here are the famous cool people that come from us. Like here are the illustrious people. Um, that's the one place you'll ever find women in these is they'll be like, here are like, like lovely, um, like women that we, that, that, that are like uphold correct morality and stuff like that. Um, but they, some of these, I'd say about 10 to 15% of them, when we get into the late Qing and the early Republican period, have a section on local language where they ah. will say like, this is how, this is what the people here speak. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and there you get a lot of these notions of what what I actually wrote a, another article. I don't I go into this much less in the book than I do um, in this article. Um, but you essentially have a lot of these arguments of how close is our language to the language of antiquity. Right. They quote Zhang Bingling a lot. They're like, Zhang Bingling says that our language is very close to the language of antiquity. Um, and it's like, and like, and by tracing it, they're sometimes they don't explicitly say like, and therefore we're not like changed by these Manchus, but that's the implicit argument. Now, as far as the like colloquial periodicals, those I would argue really are written in, in um, Fang Yan and they are done so with a political purpose, mm -hmm. right? The idea is to reach a wider audience. And so if you write colloquially the way that people speak, they're more likely to read it. Um, and those were often very anti-Ching. Yeah. Um, they, if you look through sort of like their publication history, it's like this existed for 12 issues until the publisher got arrested. Um, so there was a lot of cat and mouse with these kinds of periodicals periodicals. They're pretty short-lived for the most part, um, but their existence shows this moment. Most of, almost all of them were like 1898 to like 1910. Um, they're all at the very tail end of the Qing dynasty. Um, when, um, when you have people trying to sort of drum up popular resentment towards the Qing empire and the Qing government in particular. Okay, and you were able to review actual copies of these periodicals? Yeah, so um, there were a bunch of them in libraries in Guangzhou, um, which was very cool. Um, and um, they're digitized. So like they're like, I didn't get to hold them in my hands. Which <laughs> I guess I understand my guess is they're very fragile. Right, um, right. So I got to read a bunch of digital copies of them, but they're they're really cool. Yeah. Um, there's some that I found um, digital copies that exist online. Um, there's a Ningbo, um, there's a Ningbo Baihua um, periodical that I found some copies of it um, in, in um, just like online. Um, but generally speaking, yeah, I, I spent a lot of time in, in, uh, gosh, what's the name of the library? The main library in this, in the, in the city of Guangzhou, mm -hmm. uh, looking through these it was pretty cool. Wow. Uh, did you see a copy of Zhao Ziyang's Cantonese love songs? So I, I, um, I was trying to remember, um, whether or not I, where I first saw this book. Um, so there is actually this exists on Hathi Trust. Um, like if anybody really wants to go see Zhao Zi, uh, Zhao Zi Cantonese love songs, um, it exists on Hathi Trust. Hathi so Trust. 
So Hathi Trust, H-A-T-H-I-T-R-U-S-T, it's sort of like a digital archive. And so things that are in the public domain will often end up on Hathi, especially if they are seen to have like archival or scholarly value, will exist on Hathi Trust. Uh -huh. um, so for, for, the, for the budding historians or existing historians of your listeners, um, Hathi Trust is a trove. It's got a lot of really good stuff. Um, and so because this would be in the public domain at this point, um, it's pretty easy to find. Um, and interestingly, there's also an English translation of that book um, from 1907, I believe. Um, and that is on Google Books. Oh, yeah, um, really? Yeah. So if you really want to dig into sort of Cantonese love songs, um, there's a there's a one there's some wonderful diagrams in there and some really good explanations. Um, so that's on Google Books if you wanted to find it. Oh, great. Yes. Okay. Uh, the you're right that the, the term Mandarin was first popularized in the West by uh, the British diplomat Thomas Wade, who yeah. was famous for the uh, Wade Giles romanization system. And uh, he was basically referring to Guan Hua or the language of officialdom, language of officials. Yeah. Uh, how distinct was this from what was being spoken by the uh, the common people of Beijing? That's a good question. And it's honestly a little bit hard for us to know. And, and one of the sort of methodological difficulties, I think, of doing work like this. Um, so Thomas Wade, uh, so even if sort of we, we are sympathetic historians, which I tend to be, right, and that Thomas Wade is doing his very best, right? So he's living in, in Beijing and he's trying to record what people are speaking, right? Um, even if he's doing his very best and he's having very sort of faithful um, transliterations of what he's hearing, we don't actually know who he's speaking to, right? Um, or necessarily whether he's taking a representative sample, um, whether he's speaking mostly to elites, I think we can presume that's true, right? And so it's it's very difficult, I think, to get a sense of, of whether or not what he was writing down was, was what the average person was speaking in Beijing. Um, and more importantly, or maybe as importantly, um, Thomas Wade was really trying to record what he saw as the language of officials, right? Um, that if you want to do sort of, if we think about him as a diplomat and you want to do diplomat to diplomat um, communication, right? You care what elites are speaking. Um, and so I, I think we can be, we can be sympathetic to Thomas Wade that he really was trying to record um, what he thought was 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 good educational material, right? Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he knew or even really cared, I think, what your average person in Beijing was speaking. Mm -hmm. Okay, now the next big uh, turning point, of course, comes with the uh, Republican government taking over after the 1911 revolution. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 1913, there was a conference in Beijing on choosing a national language, or Guo Yu. Uh, you write a lot about this. Can you uh, talk a bit about um, what were some of the currents at that conference and what ultimately came of it? Great question. So this is one of my favorite stories to tell. And, it's, and one of the reasons is because this is the story that people like to tell me a lot. Um, and so, you know, I'll be like, hey, I'm researching language reform and stuff like that. And they're like, did you know that there was a conference and people voted on what would be the national language? And this is in particular, Cantonese speakers like to say, Cantonese lost by two votes or three votes. Right? Uh -huh. So there's there's this, this sort of like, um, like legend, I guess, of where the Mandarin comes from. And it came from this vote and Cantonese lost. Um, 
And, and one time I, I brought up at a talk um, that like, you know, hey, this is a really common story that people like to tell. And the truth is a lot more complicated than that. And I got pushback from someone in the audience. They're like, no, it's even on Wikipedia. And I'm like, uh. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, so to me, like there's, there's some, there's some stuff that's being missed here. Um, I don't want to say there wasn't a conference. There obviously was, there was a lot of conferences. Um, it's pretty common to have language conferences there. And their goal was to figure out what this national language should be, right? Like that's what they cared about. Um, and there were some people there um, who were arguing with the likes of like, like, ex like implicitly arguing because Zhang Bingling wasn't there, but it, like implicitly arguing with John Bingling saying like, no, it needs to be the language of Beijing because look at international examples, like France choosing its national language, they choose the language of Paris. Japan choosing its national language, they choose what's spoken in the capital. Like choosing the capital language is a really normal thing to do. Um, but there were a lot of other people there who were less interested in saying like, no, Cantonese because I speak it or no, like the language of Jiangsu because that's what I speak. Like that's not really the argument they were making. They were more like making a sort of a bigger argument, which is that choosing the language of the capital isn't the best way to pick or create or um, promote a language that represents our nation, right? They're like, we are too linguistically diverse um, to just pick one and let everyone else be losers. Um, and that we need to think more broadly about how a language represents a nation. So for a lot of them, they were arguing that either it should be something a little bit closer to this language of antiquity, um, a little bit more of an average of things come together, or, and this is what ends up happening, we can create a conglomerate. Right. Like we can bring together. So if if um, you or any of your listeners are, are, are familiar with Esperanto, yeah, sure. um, which is the, I, yeah, the idea that like we can bring all the languages together and create like an Ur language, right, that that everyone can kind of understand and has like different representations from different languages. That's the idea behind this. Right. Um, we're dealing with probably a, a less broad range of languages here. But what they come up with is this language that is about 80 to 90%, depending on estimates, similar to the language of Beijing. So pretty similar, right? Um, but they include all of this other stuff. And by stuff, I don't just mean vocabulary. I mean like literally phonological distinctions that don't exist in the language of Beijing. So one of the most common ones is that in Southern languages, um, like there might be two characters, for instance, that are pronounced in Beijing. They're both pronounced sure. But in um, Southern Fangyan, one might be, is it, is it a link, is, is in sort of like a phonological category that would pronounce sure or she or whatever. And the other one has a, a, a stop ending. So if you spend time sort of like, or a good example of this is the, the word bok choy, which is a Cantonese term. So that bok, that, that K at the end of it is called a stop ending. Um, there are no Ks at the end of words in Mandarin, but there are in Southern Fangyan. Um, and so that sort of stop ending um, is, is, a, is a historical category of, of, of um, characters and how they're pronounced. That, that the distinction between those that have the stop ending and those that don't are lost in Mandarin, but they exist in Southern Fangyan. And so they're like, we need to include that, right? Um, or else Southern Fangyan people are going to be like, how can these all be like, that doesn't make any sense, right? And so um, that's one of the things they include in this, in this new language. Um, and so that's what they come up with in 1913. Um, but as I go into in the book, um, You've got a lot of dreamers who think that this is a really great representative language of the Chinese nation. And then you get people who try to 
teach it. <laughs> and they're like, well, but no one speaks this, <laughs> right? So like, how how are you ever going to convince a, a country of um, the way that, that Zhao Yuanren put it? He was like, I was, I was the only person who spoke this language that was meant to be the national language of 600 million people, right? So it was, it, there was an impracticality to it. Um, at the very least, you didn't have a body of speakers, right? You didn't have a body of native speakers to teach it. Um, and so that ends up being rejected um, for what is more or less a wholesale acceptance of what's spoken in Beijing, which is about 12 years later. Um, but that is that is what we have that happens in 1913 and where we get the origin of this is where Mandarin comes from. Uh-huh. So this this idea was abandoned in the um in the 1920s? Yeah, in 1925. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. So what, what happened in, in 25? What was the turning point so, that year? Yeah. So basically what happens is, I mean, so from about 1913 all the way through the early 1920s, you have people writing articles being like, this is stupid. <laughs> I, I'm I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Yeah, 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 yeah. Articulate yeah. than that, right? Um and then you have people trying to make new phonographs of it. Zhao Yuanren makes one of, one of them. Um, and then in 1925, you have a bunch of men come together and they're more, they seem to, they're emboldened by the Department of Education or the Ministry of Education in Beijing. And they're like, figure this out. <laughs> what, are, what is our national language? And they all come together and they're like, it's gotta be the language of Beijing. That's the, that's the only thing that makes practical sense. Mm -hmm. um, and so we don't have, the, the the best information we have on this meeting, it comes from Zhao Yunren's diaries um, and his letters. Um, and so that's where we kind of learn about this. And then also there's a there's a one of the members of the people involved in this, his name is Li Jinxi. He ends up writing a sort of like after the fact history of the national language. Um, and he calls it like his like the, the it's just called the history of the national language. Um, and he writes about this too. Um, and so that's how we know about it. Um, and then by the time we get to 1927, um, the KMT has taken over that government in Beijing, um, and we have a KMT-led government, and they basically are just like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, that this, is, this already is being um, promoted by the Ministry of Education. Now that we run the Ministry of Education, we're just going to keep it that way. All right, and the Ministry of Education before that had been a very kind of confusing period, which I have a hard time keeping track of when there were various... Warlord factions, yeah. which were uh, kind of vying for power in Beijing, and it was a very weak central government. Yes. Yeah. So during from about 1911 to about 1927, you do have a really weak central government. It does exist, though. Right. So it's it's it, it has some power. Um, it doesn't have a lot of power. So where it doesn't have power is it doesn't really have the power to enforce or compel anybody to do anything. But it does have the power to make decisions. And so in this particular case, right, they don't have the power to go to schools and be like, teach this language, right? That, that's not really something they can do. Um, but what they can do is say, we declare this is the national language. Um, and so that's kind of what's happening. So um, there's there's some interesting scholarly debate about how to think about that central government, which again, doesn't really have any real power except for that, except for within itself. Um, but I do think that that power within itself matters, right? If we think about sort of like the way bureaucracy works, um, even if, say, if we're thinking about the United States, right, if we're thinking about the Department of Education, um, even if they can't compel 
schools to do anything them declaring something really it has an effect right mm-hmm. it has a it has a it has a cultural effect because it carries some weight um and i think that's the best way to think about it if that makes sense right, but there was a degree more uh, actual administrative centralization after the um the kuomintang took beijing in the yes. northern expedition of 1927 yes. right yeah. So after that, that's the point at which the, the Ministry of Education gets a little bit more teeth. Um, one of the things they can do is they can start sort of promoting particular textbooks um, that 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 um, that that teach this particular. And, th- and that only works in the schools where they have some reach. So you have some like communist occupied areas where they're using their own materials and stuff like that. Um, but they they have a little bit more reach and they have a little bit more teeth. Um, and and in particular, where they have a lot of the, the the power and reach is with textbook producers, right? So if they can put pressure on textbook producers to be like teach this, um, then those materials are going to be more available, right? Um, and and they all and so and they also I think have a little bit more. There's a little bit more of a sense of if you are a local school in like Xiamen, it's like, well, this is what the government's telling us to do. So that that can dictate our curriculum. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if they can't like force everyone to do it, there is a sense of that. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, you know, getting back to some of the ideas which led up to this mm-hmm. new national policy um, in 1919, you would add the May 4th movement, which yeah. um, emerged to protest the the bad deal that China got after World War One. With the German holdings in Shandong being transferred to Japan rather than returned to China, but there was also a um, a cultural aspect to the to the May Fourth movement, which you call a Chinese Enlightenment. Can can you speak a little bit about this? Sure thing. Um, so actually, I want to give my due to scholar Vera Schwartz, who actually to- coined the term Chinese Enlightenment. Um, but the idea here, right, is that in sort of very broad terms, uh, the May 4th movement was driven in part by this idea that um, in order for China to be modern enough to stand up to, say, Japanese imperialism or Western imperialism, it needed to have a modern culture and that sort of old ideas like Confucianism, right, like traditional gender roles, they, they make a big deal about what they call superstition, um, that these ideas, which they sort of lumped together as being traditional, were holding China back, right, that there were like sort of shackles keeping people um, tied to the past. Um, and what what um, scholars have sort of the reason that this is often called an enlightenment is that it, there's a there's a real parallel here to the European enlightenment in the sense that like a big part of that was the idea that religion was holding people back, right, that religion was making people illogical. Um, it was making them like they weren't looking at what's in front of them, right? They didn't care about empiricism. Um, and you have a similar kind of sense from these guys who called themselves May Fourthers of like Confucianism is keeping people down and and stupid, right? Um, and so there, there's a there's a there's a fair amount of of condescension here, um, and it's a condescension that comes from a real sense of panic. Right. That that this that that all of these traditional ideas are keeping China weak. Right. Um, and so that is that's the idea behind the of the, the sort of May 4th movement. Um, and and that, how did they touch on the whole question of language? Great question. Um, and so there's two ways, I think. The first is that the May 4th movement actually ends up dovetailing with this other movement it's called the new culture movement by the time like may 4th 1919 happens they just they get conflated a lot um but the new culture movement was the idea that like 
art belongs to the people. And when we keep speaking or writing in this classical jargon, um, no one understands it. So let's start writing literature in the vernacular that people can really understand. Um, and so there's this sort of like idea that vernacular is modern, but also that it is not elitist. Um, and that um, really transforms the way that people write. Um, like th there are some people still writing in sort of like a classical kind of prose. And there's certainly vernacular texts before 1919, but the sort of like volume shifts really dramatically um, in the second decade of the 20th century, uh, where lots and lots of like everybody feels compelled to write the way we speak. Um, so right, that's this was, this, this was the era of Lu Shun. Yes, he was a he was a vanguard in that of Lu Shun. Yes. Forgive me for mispronouncing his name. Author, author of Diary of a Madman. I guess that'd yes. be his most famous work. That, that yes. came out when? Oh, gosh. You're uh, 1918, I think. I'm not 100% uh, 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 sure. Around that time. Um, but yeah, uh, late 1910s, early 1920s. Uh, so that was written in uh, uh, like a kind of a vernacular Bayesian yes. dialect? Yes, that was. So I, he would probably argue it's closer to. So. These things, these, these distinctions get really complicated, but I think he would argue that it is using sort of like, he is trying to translate Chinese to fit a more sort of like European prose style. So a lot of that grammar is borrowing from Mandarin, right, in terms of like the main verbs and the main particles and the main grammatical patterns. But a lot of his vocabulary is coming from his own milieu, which is the south of China. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we say to, to sort of bring this back to earlier conversations about what Mandarin is, um, when we say that like Mandarin, like the definition of Mandarin is that it, it takes modern vernacular literature as its standard grammar and, and um, vocabulary, they're talking about like the literature of Lushun, um, who who is it's it's there's a lot of really detailed analyses of like, well, this is from like Shanghainese and this is from right and stuff like that. But it's it's a pastiche of, of, of vocabulary, um, but it is meant to sort of mimic the way that um, sort of like a European prose style written in a vernacular-esque Chinese. All right, well, the distinction between, uh, you know, Mandarin and the Feng Yen is uh, more has to do with spoken than, than written language because more or less the same characters. Yes. So it is the same script. Um, what gets complicated is that when you get to sort of Southern Feng Yen, um, they're say like the verb to be um, would be would be different in Cantonese than it would be in Mandarin, right? Um, or um, the way that you would denounce denote past tense would be different, would use different characters if you transcribed it literally, right? Mm -hmm. um, like if you transcribed it character per character. Um, and so when you get into Southern Fang Yen, if you transcribe it, it looks really different. Um, but um, it's the same characters. It's just you use different ones, right? It's the same set of characters. So there's like, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 characters. It would just be a different one for the verb to be. I hope I'm explaining this well. It's hard to do in an oral format, um, but I hope that makes some sense. All right. Can you uh, speak a bit about this um, ethic of, again, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Kei Shui or science? 
Yeah, yeah. So koshwe, I, I mean, science is a great translation for the term koshwe. Um, so that's the second way that the May 4th movement is really important, right? So in addition to spearheading this, this like vernacular literature movement, it also spearheads this idea that really the only kind of valuable knowledge is scientific knowledge. Um, and there's a lot of debates about what that what science means here. So you have some who are like, well, this stuff that's going on in the Qing dynasty is really scientific. And then you have a, a lot of other guys who are like, no, it's not. The only thing that's scientific is like Western scientific methods. Um, and so you, um, you have in particular among men who had done their like advanced degrees in America and in Europe, they come back and they're like, no, the only way to study languages is through the science of linguistics, which they are taking European comparative linguistics um, as their as their sort of base here. And that genuinely transforms the way that languages are studied um, because these sort of old phonological patterns and the knowledge that comes from them, like it still matters, but it's not explicitly taken as sort of like scientific. Um, and so instead you have people going out there with like wax cylinder recordings and saying like, we need to record the way that people speak um, and record it using the international phonetic alphabet, right? We need like a, a big survey data sample, right? Um, we need to think about languages and dialects as existing on a sort of taxonomic tr evolutionary tree, the way that comparative linguistics often do. Um, so it really does change a lot of the ways that people are thinking about how what languages are and how they relate to each other. Okay, what was this uh, early recording technology? Wax cylinders? Yeah, I'll be honest. I just I just read guys talking about it. Um, my guess is that if I dug a little more, I could find out what they right. look like, but I'm not totally sure. <laughs> huh. Well, I was very interested to learn of the uh, folk song collection group led yeah. by a scholar called Liu Banang, who undertook the kind of work in China that Alan Lomax would pursue in America a generation later. Yeah. Although um, I assume without recording equipment or maybe with some of this very early primitive recording equipment, uh, can you speak a little bit about uh, about their work and were you able to uh, you know view any of the folk song collection group archives? So yeah, it's a great question. Um, and and you're right, they are so. Um, I don't know because you're right, Alan Lomax would have been later, but there were folk song collectors um in britain earlier and they actively translated those works right so like in in their in their materials they translated stuff about folk song collection from from britain um and they used that like scholarship as their methodology this is also sort of the early days of ethnographies um ethnologies um and and that being sort of like its own kind of science right um, before we um like sort of the early uh, rather racial, it's essentializing days of anthropology. Um, some of these guys uh, had worked with or knew of the work of like Edward Sapir um, and such. But um, for them, right, they were also inspired by the May 4th movement um, in the sense that they believed that like, okay, if everything old and traditional is bad and elitist, 
then the opposite of that is the folk songs that people in the village are speaking now, right? Um, though That's where the real heart of what China is. Um, and there were some members of the May 4th movement that disagreed, right? They were like, no, like the hoi polloi, they're all superstitious and backwards. We don't really care what they're singing. But for the folk song collection movement guys, they're like, no, this is the heart of our Chinese nation, right? That that we need to understand what they're singing and they need we need to understand their language as they're speaking it because it is deeply authentic. Right. Um, this is the most authentic, like sort of like representation of what Chinese people speak like. If we care, if we care about contemporary lived experience, then this really matters. Um, as far as whether they're archives, if there are like unpublished things by them, I don't know where they are, but they 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 published a lot, right? Like they had like a weekly magazine. Um, they had an insert in um, Beijing University student newspaper. Um, where they would publish once a week. Um, so that is where I got most of my information about those guys. Okay. And then is this online or did you have to like, you know, dig through the stacks in some library somewhere to view this? Um, so I, I originally started reading a lot of this stuff in a library in Beijing, although mm -hmm. then I found out that the Stanford Library has them too. So if you uh -huh, wanted to uh -huh. dig through Folk Songs Weekly, um, they definitely exist at the um, Stanford Library. Also, there's a really wonderful database of, of post-1911 and pre-1914, so 1911 and 1949 periodicals. Um, and a lot of the, the, the sort of like early issues of this that existed in Beijing student magazine, I had a hard time finding in that database, but when they break off and they do their own periodical, most of those exist on that database too. Uh-huh. Okay. You mentioned Edward Sapir, who actually yeah. studied native American languages in this yes. period. Uh, what was his influence, uh, you know, on his, uh, counterparts in China? Oh, so one of the people that I talk a little bit about in my book, his name is Li Fenggui. Um, and he is he's fascinating in the sense that he did his doctoral work um, at the University of Chicago um, and then went and wrote his dissertation about a um, indigenous group in Canada that he claims he discovered. Um, I think we can we can all be very critical of the entire idea here of like, you know, sort of like like um, discovery, yes, yeah, of like yeah, discovering yeah. people that exist and live and stuff like right, that. Yes, yes. Um, but um, he so he takes that dissertation research and then he comes back to China and does a lot of research on non-Han indigenous people in China. Uh -huh. um, and so somebody asked him once, he's like, why don't you go do like Fangyan surveys? And he's like, eh, enough people are doing that. I'm more interested in the non-Han language surveys, right? Um, and so he takes a lot of that training there, right? Um, and so there's this sort of fascinating question about how we think about imperialism, because I think there's a lot of really good critiques of, of early days of anthropology and the way that, that, that white institutions would study and categorize um, indigenous peoples in North America. Um, and I think those are important critiques to talk about. Um, and I think that Li Fanggui um, and students like him were, were active in this, right? Like they were active participants in this kind of imperialism. And then they also took this, this sort of knowledge and on the one hand saw themselves as sort of like being patriotic Chinese by learning about their own nation so as to combat Western imperialism, 
but then also othering and racializing non-Han indigenous peoples in China. So there's this sort of these interesting layers of how we think about power and imperialism in these kinds of projects that I think are really fascinating. Um, and Li Fanghui, right, like he's, um, his oral history is, I believe, just free online. You can read it if you want to. Um, and, and he has a lot of fascinating things to say. Um, I think there was a lot of blind spots um, for, for Han Chinese men in particular who studied non-Han peoples. Um, but from their perspective, what... Uh, what sort of like white anthropologists were doing counted as as science, right? That they were just using scientific methods. Um, and and I think that, that that's sort of a, a messy, fascinating history. All right, uh, two questions about his work, kind of related yeah. questions. First, um, just out of curiosity, um, do you know uh, what or where was this indigenous group in Canada, which he claimed to have quote unquote discovered? Yeah, it was they were called the Matol, M-A-T-T-O-L-E, and they were around the Great Lakes region. Hmm. Um, he bragged about the fact, I don't know if brag is the right word, but he no, yeah, he bragged. Um, he was like, I I I was led to them by like basically he went around and trying to make connections with people and at some point like offered people fish um and ended up coming across this group. And he's like, you have a unique linguistic um way way of speaking that I don't think has been recorded. Right. And so um, and so that is how that's from that's his way of, of, of explaining what happened. OK, what were some of the, the non-Han groups that he worked with in China? So one of the so he spent a lot of time in the province of Yunnan, um, which is um, it's in the southwest corner of China. Um, it it borders like Vietnam and Laos. Um, and um, he so the the Thai was one uh, group that he recorded. And then yes. the other was the. The Lolo, um, which is not a group we 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 talk about today very often, but he did, right? Um, I think that they would be included in a different, they would be categorized differently today. Um, but those were the two. He also did a little bit of work on Tibetan as well. So how, how would the Lolo be char characterized today? Gosh, I I don't remember. I'm okay. really sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, you, you mentioned um, you mentioned the tie. That's T A I. Yes. Uh, there was some uh, uh, controversy as to whether or not they were um, actually a Han language. They, they were sort of considered to be ambiguously Han yeah. in this period. And they're sort of spoken on the, the southern borderlands with Vietnam. Yes. There was also a similar controversy uh, concerning the Hakka. Yes. Which is spoken in communities across southern China. The Hakka really seemed to have gotten around. So uh, what was the significance of this debate and how was it resolved? Great question. So I do think that the, the the nature of these controversies are a little bit different. And the main difference is that the, the Thai people, generally speaking, did not claim to be Han, right? Um, and so there's a sort of question about like, do we draw these, where do we draw the length, the, 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 the distinction between a language and a Fangyan or a language and a dialect? And, it, and in the early 20th century, it was pretty, pretty like cleanly languages are spoken by ethnicities. Um, and so therefore, like, you can't call Cantonese like a language because it's spoken by the Han ethnicity. And there's lots of Chinese, like, like, it's okay to have dialect distinctions, but not language distinctions, right? Um, whereas the Thai, like, no one's 
no one's claiming they're Han. They're not claiming they're Han, right? And so they clearly speak a different language, even if it's really, 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 really similar, right, to other Chinese languages. I mean, I think you would see something similar. I don't know much about Northern European languages, but like generally we call them different languages, even if there's a lot of overlap because they're spoken by people who see themselves as different nationalities, right? <clears throat> so, um, but with the Hakka, what the reason that that becomes complicated is because people, so the Hakka generally live in Southern China um, and there's a big Hakka diaspora as well. Um, but in the early 20th century, you had people who were local from provinces like Guangdong and Guangxi and, 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 and Fujian who were saying the Hakka are outsiders, they're not us, right? And the Hakka are saying, no, 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 we are, <laughs> right? We migrated here from the like center of Han civilization we are more Chinese than you. Um, where, where was this center of Chinese civilization taken to so be? Like, so like, it's like, it's sort of like the, basically like the, the um, oh gosh, what's it called? Um, it's not Delta, but like over, over like in, in the, in the area of the Yellow River, where we would often find like sort of the historic center of, of China. Right, 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 right. right. So um, consider so, considerably to the north of what is now the Hakka heartland. Absolutely. Yeah. So their argument is that they migrated down in the Song dynasty. Um, and because of that, so so um, so they argue that because they moved during the Song dynasty, it was before like the northern non-Han peoples invaded. Right. So therefore, they kept speaking this language uh, that was spoken by Han Chinese, mm -hmm. but they migrated before that invasion happened. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so they they preserved it better than everyone else. And uh, the main reason they were making this argument is because you had a lot of anti Hakka discrimination in the South and calling them outsiders. And there was like this really famous textbook um, that called the Hakka an outside ethnicity or an outside race. And you have Hakka elites are saying like, no, 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 that's not true. And they do this whole series of scholarship and sort of like a almost like a PR campaign to say like hey no our language is is like more Chinese than all of you um they like quoting um there's so, there's some like western observers or western missionaries who are like the Hakka are awesome and they're like look even white people recognize that we're awesome <laughs> right and so um so that's why that controversy is really fascinating right because in this case you have a real debate about what the Hakka are? Are they an ethnicity? Are they a subgroup of the Han? And ultimately today they are generally seen as sort of a subgroup of the Han, which is why Hakka is called a Fangyan and not called a language. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, I was uh, also very interested to learn that Lin Yutang was involved in the folk song collection group. He became well known in the West for his English language popularizations of Chinese philosophy and culture. Yeah, I, I read some of his books when I was a kid. Actually, uh, where did he stand on the um, on the language question? Great question. So he was um, first. He was like very pro national language. He was involved in a lot of these debates. He was in the room for a lot of these meetings. Um, but where he's also really fascinating, and he makes his mark in a lot of different plays ways. He like he creates a typewriter at some point. Um, I, that the typewriter story is well told in a couple of books. Um, most um, Probably the best one is the Chinese typewriter, the history, like, what's it called? The history of the Chinese, oh no, it's called the Chinese typewriter, a history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, by Tom Mulaney. Um, but um, he also um, was, was one of the early practitioners of what he saw as like dialect science. 
Um, and so he really pushed, for instance, a, a group at Beijing University to use the methods of comparative linguistics um, to study Chinese fengyan, to do like scientific surveys using charts, using like big data sets and stuff like that. Um, and so he pushed that really hard. Um, he didn't end up doing, as far as I know, many of his own, if any of his own, but he created the structures for that. Um, he was also an English professor, right? So he also taught English at Beijing University as well. He did a lot of stuff. He, was very he ultimately good. settled in America, didn't he? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, by the late 1930s, the uh, communists had established an autonomous zone with its capital at Yan'an in Shanxi province. And uh, they undertook uh, cultural work, such as performance troops traveling the countryside to carry out education through theater in the local vernaculars. And uh, Mao Zedong uh, expounded on the role of language in revolution in his talks at the Yan'an Forum on Literature and Art. Uh, can you maybe sum up some of the ideas that were expressed here? Sure. Um, and I want to stress, actually, that this is still really important today. Like just a few, a uh, couple of years ago, Xi Jinping explicitly cited this um, in his own ideas about art. Um, so I, I, there's a lot of ideas expressed here, but to me, I would sum it up with two main ones. Um, the first is that art is always political. Um, and that pretending like it's not is is just to be sort of blind, right? Um, and so if we know that art is always political, which is which is an argument I really quite agree with, I think art is always political, but then sort of like the extension of that is that therefore we should be deliberate about it, right? We should be deliberate about pushing our particular agenda through art since it's going to always be political anyway. Right. Um, he was in particular sort of like frustrated at kind of like what he saw as like superficial kind of love stories um, that you saw or like sort of like like things that weren't serious. Right. Um, he's like, that's political, too. It's just sending the wrong message. So let's send the right message. Right? Oh, this, this um, is what Mao was saying. Mao was saying this. Back yeah, in the 30s. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 1942 was when oh, this was. Oh, okay. That late. Okay. Uh -huh. Yeah. And part of the reason, and so he, he said this at the end of a bunch of debates, but part of the reason he said this is by the time we get to 1942, Japan had occupied a lot of China's urban centers. Um, and so if you are in Shanghai, you have kind of three options, right? Um you have stay in Shanghai, which some people did, right? Um, you can flee to Chongqing where the nationalists are, or you can flee to Yan'an and, and be a part of the communist movement. And for a lot of artists, which tend to be left-leaning anyway, a lot of them fled to Yan'an. So Yan'an got this big burgeoning of artists um, in the late 30s and early 40s. And Mao was like, okay, we need to be explicit about what we're doing here, right? Um, we need a party line, right? Um, and so again, so his first main point here was that art is political. And second, that art should have wide appeal, right? So that we need to not have elitist art. Um, elitist art is bad for us. Um, so it, we needed to both represent and speak to the common people, right? The, the, the proletariat, the base of our revolution. Um, so those are the main ideas. All right, now one figure in this period was Xiang Lin Bing, yeah. who drew on the work of the Folk Song Collection Group uh, to you know, advance this kind of cultural work under, under communist rule. Can you say something about his approach? Sure. And so he he's directly a part of this debate that that Mao 
is speaking to in his thoughts on the Yenon Forum. Um, so when we think about Mao's speech, right, um, he is, he's saying, right, that art is political and that art needs to um, directly speak to the masses, right? Part of what that's pushing against is what they see as kind of a, a, a cosmopolitan, if not explicitly sort of Eurocentric approach to modernization that comes out of the May 4th movement, right? They're saying like, hey, like vernacular literature is good, but you guys are writing like these kinds of like like stuff like like Shanghai coffee house stuff that's that's not relevant to your average person, right? Um, and so what you have here is you, and so one of the things that Mao said really early on, like several years before the talks of the Yenon Forum, is he's like, we need to make art that the Chinese people love to see and hear. And there's this huge flourishing of debate of like, what does that mean, right? Um, which Chinese people? What matters? And what's um, what Xiang Bean comes to and he says is he's like, the May Fourth idea of colloquial literature is in fact elitist. What's not elitist is what everyone is speaking on the ground, right? So like things being spoken, like what your average farmer is saying and speaking, that is what people are speaking, right? Like that is that is that is what Chinese people love to see and hear. And there's a real sort of like anti-imperialism to this. Um, the idea that like the May 4th movement was too Eurocentric and that we should get back to like the lived experience of, of the average Chinese peasant. Um, and that is where we, that's the inspiration for art and language. All right. So, and so, so there was a kind of a legitimization of the, um, of the Fan Yang. In, in, yeah. In and, work. yeah. And so later on, he, he kind of backs away from it a little bit. He's like, well, yeah, but we all kind of need to speak the same language kind of sort of, but there is a validation in the sense that like, no, this is a legitimate part of our nation, right? Mm -hmm. This is a legitimate part of who we are. And it's a legitimate part of if we are really claiming to speak for the everyday people, then we really need to speak for the everyday people. And this is what they're speaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So in 1949, the communists take power in Beijing. Yes. And in 1954, establish a committee for language reform in China. This seems to have had a rival currents, emphasizing either a common tongue for the whole nation or an ethic of linguistic diversity. So this, this debate was continuing. Yes. Uh, yeah. But the uh, the centralizing tendency kind of won out under the influence of Joseph Stalin. And <laughs> yes. In, and in particular, a um, a Soviet linguist named uh, Nikolai, I'm sorry, Nikolai Isofovich Conrad, who became associated with the new concept of a national language or Minzu Yu. Can you uh, say something about his ideas and how they were influencing the debate in China? Sure. Um, so I do I do want to stress that I think that some of this like exists independent of Stalin. Um, it's really hard to trace influence, I think, right? So in 1950, so we'll, we'll go into the history here and then, and then I can speak to that a little bit. Yeah. So in 1950, Joseph Stalin writes this track um about language and and nationality. Um and I think there are there are some historians who see this as sort of like a pretty bald-faced attempt to, to justify national language policy, which there are some in sort of some communist spaces we're seeing as really elitist, right? Like telling everybody they have to speak the same language is there's something really elitist about that, right? Um, it's not speaking to the, the sort of lived experiences of the everyday people. 
Um, and so what Stalin does in some really phenomenal, like philosophical gymnast gymnastics, in my opinion, um, is argue that um, language doesn't exist in sort of this, for those who are familiar with, with Marxist theory, right, doesn't exist in this um, base superstructure um, space, right? It exists independent of it. And basically what that means is that language doesn't, is not determined by class. It has nothing to do with class. Um, language only has to do with nationality, right? And therefore, a good communist government or a communist-minded government should have no problem having a national language policy. That's not a bad thing. To make everyone speak Russian in his case, right, um, or Chinese in the China case. And so, again, tracing influence is hard. There were a fair amount of communists who already believed this, Right. Um, there were a fair amount of communists who were all gung ho about speaking a um, like, like promulgating one standard language. Right. Um, but Stalin, I think, gave legitimacy to those ideas. So when we start getting scholarship and we start getting magazines and, and written materials from communist um, like policymakers and linguists, they quote Stalin constantly. <laughs> They're like, Stalin says this, so, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So where, say, like, uh, where Conrad fits into this, and I don't, honestly, I, I do not speak Russian, so I don't know how to pronounce his name really well. Um, but what he does is he takes Stalin's ideas and he translates them to the Chinese contexts. Um, and what he adds, right, is that he's like, is that essentially, if we think about languages as belonging to nationalities, right, um, then it makes sense to say that the Han people should have one language, right? Um, and that they already do, um, he argues. So so that's, that's like, basically that's fine, right? Um, he says a lot of other things. He also sort of like sneaks into talking about like Mongolian and Uyghur, right? Um, and Tibetan, uh, because he's like, well, these clearly aren't Han languages, right? Um, they are clearly their own nationalities, but we also are not like making Tibet independent. So how do we say it? So he calls them like proto-national nationalities, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why they get to keep their own language. <laughs> um, but they're still not like their own country, if that makes sense. Um, so again, there's some 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 sort of like philosophical gymnastics going on here. But the idea here is to <clears throat> take basically give support for there is a communist interpretation of a sort of like top-down enforcement of one language policy that fits within um, communist philosophy. Right, but uh, th the whole notion that, that language is not shaped by class would, would seem to me to be kind of un-Marxist. You would <laughs> yeah. think that the, yeah. the, the exact opposite idea would be, uh, you know, promulgated by orthodox Marxists. Right. And so this is this is one of these contexts, right, where when we think about what communism is in theory and what it what it what it is sort of like looks like in practice becomes really interesting. My students really love to ask me, they're like, is China a communist country? Because it really doesn't seem like it. Right. And I'm like, right. And so it's like, well, I mean, there's a few ways to answer that question. Right. The first is what metric are we using? Are we are we applying sort of like Marxist, our interpretation of Marxist ideals to a to a government and saying like, you're not upholding this, so you're wrong, right? Or are we saying like, well, they're calling themselves communists. So what does that mean to them, right? Like they are also interpreting Marx. And, and like, look, I look at this and I'm like, this is some really impressive 
um, twisting and turning to make this logically work, right? Um, but I think it's really fascinating to me that rather than um, that they are trying to make it work, right? Like they understand that there's real power in claiming themselves to be Marxist. Um, and rather than sort of giving that up so they can do the policies that they want to do, right? They're trying to make it work within a communist framework. Um, and so does that mean they're communist or hypocrites? I don't know. Um, that's that's a hard thing for me to say. Um, I can say that I think that that logic is shaky, right? Um, but that is, but I think the fact that they're trying to do that is really fascinating. Another example of this, right, is like, you'll have people who call themselves Christians and then say or advocate things that seem rather unbiblical, right? And so there's two ways to do that and be like, well, you're not a real Christian. But as a historian, I would rather say, well, you're calling yourself Christian. And so this is how some Christians are interpreting the Bible is in this particular way. Right. Well, uh, at least I think this was kind of a, uh, a legitimate question as to whether it was, um, uh, you know, hip consciously hip hypocritical Right. Uh, in, in, in the Maoist era today, I don't think there's any ambiguity about it at all. I mean, China underwent a, a thoroughgoing capitalist conversion yeah. after Mao died. Uh, and, you know, today it's like this aggressive, you know, globalized capitalism. I, to me, the uh, the Marxist rhetoric is just a very thin veneer. Yeah. But um, I think it probably had more, um, it was more legitimately heartfelt in the Maoist era. So let's, uh, before we get ahead of ourselves, um, Probably not coincidentally, it was at the time of the Great Leap Forward yeah. in 1958 that uh, Putonghua, or Mandarin, won its official status as the national language. Yeah. And the uh, Feng Yan were stigmatized as counter-revolutionary. Yeah. But um, even at this, uh, you know, pinnacle of Maoist dogma, it seems that there were still some localities that were able to conduct their own affairs and even education in uh, their own Feng Yen. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, so uh, th this is sort of this really fascinating, like, split between what the government is saying and what is actually happening, right? So I spent some time in archives in Shanghai reading all of these documents that are like, we are gloriously bringing together the revolution by speaking the language. I'd also like to point out that like Mandarin gets a new name at this point. Um, you've you've mentioned it a few times, Putonghua. It literally means like the common language, right? It's It's got very sort of like proletariat, uh, everyday people kind of connotations here. Um, and so they're like, we all speak the common language because that's the language of the revolution and we're really proud of it. And then you talk to people and they're like, yeah, I mean, I guess we kind of learned how to pronounce it sometimes in school, but not always. And like our teachers didn't speak it and um, and such. And like in some contexts, like, um, you know, like it seemed impractical to even try and speak it. Right. So there's this there's this real disconnect. And I think this is true of a lot of the Maoist period where we have to be cautious about reading the rhetoric and presuming that's what people were doing. Um, it very it seemed very clear that people were rewarded um, for for learning um, Putonghua and speaking Putonghua. Um, but that didn't mean that like that would overcome the hurdle of the fact that like you you don't really have a lot of teachers to teach this stuff. They were often going to like crash courses in six weeks to learn how to speak Putonghua. And anyone who's learned to speak another language knows that that's not usually enough time. Right. And you have a you have a, a student body that isn't speaking it at home. Right. And you and and kind of just learning it in class and learning how to write like 
like pinyin and then and then going to science class and speaking their local language right so um there is like well, a sort of pinyin was the uh, the new um uh, uh transliteration system the new romanization system right and it's the one that you would most commonly see today um yeah. so it's so if you're in taiwan you'll see a different one um but right right generally speaking like mao zedong or like all of those are are are, you, are written in pinyin the one with the x's and the q's is pinyin <laughs> all right and the character is also changed the chinese character is also changed uh yes. you, you, they took on the simplified system so-called in the maoist era Yes. So um, basically what that means is that we take um, like characters, Chinese characters, and we make a bunch of them significantly like just they have fewer strokes. Right. Um, there are like if anybody who's read sort of like handwritten stuff from before 1949 know that people write things shorthand all the time. So there's like a lot of precedent for this. But what happens in the Maoist period is that we take these shorthands and we make them standard. Right. Um, so like if you've ever written handwritten notes and write instead of writing, et cetera, you'd probably write ETC. Right. What we're doing in the Maoist era is just making ETC standard. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that's the best, I think, analogy I could come up with. Right. And similarly, that did not take hold in um, in Taiwan, which continues to use the old characters. Right. Right. So in Taiwan, they standardize what are considered sort of traditional characters. Um, Hong Kong as well. All right. So Mandarin or. Um... Hutangwa actually became more hegemonic in the post-Mao era uh, when it was actually enshrined as the national language in the 1982 constitution. Yeah. So uh, to, to what extent have um, localities been able to continue to use um, Feng Yen since then? Yeah, so this is really fascinating, right? Um, so the constitution, right, it says that 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 Putonghua is, is, the, is the national language. Um, in reality, again, people speak it all the time, but I agree with you entirely that it can it became more hegemonic solely because after 1982, the state became significantly more effective in what it could do, right? Uh, <clears throat> so for instance, um, starting in the 1980s and 90s, um, teachers have to pass a um, a pretty high level Putonghua exam um, in order to become a teacher. Uh, so that like the bar for becoming a teacher in schools became higher. Also, they started ensuring that that it wasn't just like language studies teachers that 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 used Putonghua, but that all teachers could do that. Right. Um, so even if you were in like history class or math class that you were still learning and speaking Putonghua, um, you have an explosion of mass media after the in the 1980s where television and radio are being done in Putonghua and like people are listening to it. So you have, you just have an explosion of structures that make it significantly easier um, to learn Mandarin and significantly harder for other languages to have those kinds of structures or other Fangyan to have those kinds of structures. Um, and by the time we get to the early 2000s, right? You have a language law that puts into place a lot of these sort of like, this is specifically where you can use Fangyan. This is specifically where you can use Tibetan and these kinds of things. Um, and they're really just like, um, like non-official capacities, right? You you use Fangyan for educational purposes, for the purposes of study, um, for artistic purposes you can, or, and this one's interesting when people can't understand each other. <laughs> right. Uh, 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 um, but that's a pretty limited list of things when you're thinking about where and when we would use or, well, uh, an, an important question. When you say uh, they could use Feng Yen for educational purposes, you mean particular yeah. education in 
the local, um, you know, studying the Feng Yen itself. Right, right. Yeah, it means that. It doesn't opposed to as opposed to the more, you know, general instruction, which would have been in um, in in Mandarin. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. It's like, well, it's okay to study Feng Yen as though they're they're kind of like cultural relics that exist. We can study. But that but like they're not they're not meant for math class. (laughs) Right. Gotcha. 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 All right. So uh, even though, as we can see here, even though your uh, your book is entitled Dialect and Nationalism in China, 1860 to 1960, you actually bring it up to the current day. Yeah. Uh, you write about the uh, contemporary Shanghai vlogger, Papi Jiang, mm-hmm. who has uh, popularized the uh, the local Fang Yen. I was able to find her videos on YouTube but I'm curious as to you know what platform she is on in China where YouTube is blocked. I'm sure there must be some equivalent to it, um, and and how she is um, viewed by the authorities and by officialdom if they have uh, taken any note of her at all. Yeah, no, they definitely have taken note of her because she's really famous, and anybody who's really famous right. and is able to monetize her videos the way that she has. Yeah. Um, and so she is she's posts regularly on like on Chinese social media like Weibo and Douban. Um, and so she's, she's very easy to find. Um, she does also post on YouTube, um, which I think it's worth keeping in mind that Chinese content creators, when they're really famous are, are very easily able to get around, um, censorship. Right. Um, and that the government, and so on. Right. Right. And that the government isn't really all that upset about that, I think. Um, or at least that that's not something they're actively punishing her for. They did. She did get in a little bit of trouble because she was using foul language. She got in a little bit of trouble for that. Um, she was told to to take down those videos and apologize. Um, but her the example of where she sort of like takes on and speaks about uh, Shanghai Fang Yen is, I think, really telling of where the communist government thinks that's okay. Like she has some great videos. I think they're hysterical where she makes fun of the way that Shanghainese people talk. Um, And so like, that's a very particular humor she's trying to get across that Shanghai people speak in a particular way. She's in particular interested in how they code switch, that they switch between Shanghainese and English and Japanese and Mandarin and like they go kind of all over the place and she finds that really interesting, right? But the vast majority of of her videos are in Mandarin. Um, And and so, yeah. All right, but she's also using some of the, uh, the local Shanghai lingo. Yeah, but usually it's to make, like sort of like lovingly mock them right Right. Mm -hmm. so she'll have like videos about what it's like being uh, a single woman at your parents when you're 30 right those kinds of videos that aren't explicitly about shanghai culture are almost always in mandarin Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm all right uh you use the term code switching which i kind of understand what it means in the uh you know the american concept uh, context because where i live uh but what more does it mean in China as opposed to, you know, just switching from uh, you know, a local um, a local dialect to Mandarin? Yeah. So I so it depends on sort of who's speaking and who they're speaking to is that it can mean a lot of different contexts. So I think it's really common among people of different generations who will have differing levels of, of Mandarin competency, where like, say, a child who is very comfortable in Mandarin will speak to their parents in Mandarin and their parents will speak back to them in like whatever they're most comfortable with, which is like um, Shanghainese or whatever language they speak, right? Um, and so um, I, I spend a lot of time in Hong Kong. Um, most of my friends whose parents were immigrants from other areas of China do that. Like they'll speak in Cantonese because that's what they grew up with and their parents will speak back in whatever like Hunanese or 
or Mandarin or whatever it is, right, that their parents speak. Um, but you also get a sense where you'll get people who will sort of like pepper, either speak Mandarin and pepper their Mandarin with like slang from the local language or the other way around, right, that they will sort of speak in the local language and then pepper it with various Mandarin things. I think to a lot of Chinese speakers, Mandarin feels very formal. Um, and so um, especially those who didn't grow up speaking it in the household, um, which there's more and more people like that today. Um, but like people my age, right, I'm in my mid 30s, um, often did not grow up speaking Mandarin in the household. And so Mandarin feels really formal. Um, and so maybe if there's something that you learned in school, you'd speak that in Mandarin, like you just say that word, right? Um, or like if you're speaking to someone um, in a in a formal context, right, that you might say, use Mandarin, but then like, use this sort of like Cantonese slang in there and that kind of thing. All right. Uh, since you happen to touch on it, where where did you grow up, if I may ask? Sure. Um, I grew up in Lakewood, Colorado, um, uh, which is like a suburb of Denver. So, um, yeah. <laughs> right, but you, you're of uh, Chinese background? I'm not. No. So uh -huh. my my parents are um, second, third, fourth. Gen I can never remember how you count generations, but my great grandparents were from Sicily. Um, ah, okay. yeah, so I learned, um, I learned Mandarin and, um, and, um, in college, um, and then I learned some Cantonese in graduate school, though, again, my Cantonese is, is pretty poor. <laughs> um, um, and so, yeah, so no, I am, I am a white American who studies all of this stuff. Uh-huh. All right. Well, that's impressive. Oh. Um, all right. There was a popular TV show recently, or perhaps still in China called, yes. um, Zhang Wo Yu Shiha, or Rap of China, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, yeah. in which kids would compete in their own, you know, kind of like hip hop creations. Yeah. Which were certainly in the vernacular and perhaps sometimes in, um, in, uh, Fang Yen. So is this still on the air? From the best of my knowledge, it is not. I think it ended in 2020. Um, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and I don't know if that was because of COVID or because the ratings were too low. I'm not totally sure. So I don't think it's still on the air. But it was really popular um, when it was around. Um, and what is what is sort of really interesting about it to me is that there would, I remember seeing clips of people doing like a rap about Shandong noodles in like a local Shandong fangyan and stuff like that. Um, but I do know that like in later seasons in particular, there was a real emphasis on sort of patriotic messaging, taking Mao's thoughts at the Yanon forum, right? And that like art is explicitly political. And so because of that, we need to be political and patriotic about it. And you found that there was at least some rappers would say that they feel and, and I think they're saying this for cameras, but it's really telling, right? That they feel more comfortable rapping in Mandarin when they're rapping about particularly political or patriotic themes. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have this sense of like, that's the national language. That's the language that we talk about patriotism in, um, which I find really interesting. I also think that there are a lot of rappers who get pressure um, to rap in Mandarin because, um, and there's, and there's, it, this isn't just political pressure. This is commercial pressure. Like if you want a wide audience, right, you need to have more people understand you. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's a sense in which like there's a reinforcing loop of where you have a government pushing one language really, really strongly, um, but then sort of capitalism follows suit, right? 
All right, but some of what was heard on this uh, TV show was in the uh, in, in local dialects. Yeah, so some of it you would hear, right? Like there were certainly clips of that. Um, it's it's more that like it's it's seen as sort of a novelty, right? It's not seen as something that like like it's like ooh, that's really interesting. Like you speak this other language and that kind of stuff. It, it was it was less. Um, it was less about sort of like, let's really celebrate the linguistic diversity of, right, of our right. country and see them all on equal terms. Mm -hmm. All right. So when they were just, you know, rapping about, you know, boy, girl stuff and just badassing, they'd be more <laughs> likely to be in, uh, you know, the local, the local lingo of their own place, as opposed to when they're on more political or patriotic themes, more likely to be in Mandarin. Yeah. So my, my limited experience with this TV show, I think would track with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about, uh, you know, uh, political and patriotic themes, this would be like, you know, um, uh, railing against the West and supporting the rise of China and yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. So there were some really, really powerful raps, I think, um, ab about that kind of stuff. Um, and like like one of the ones that I know, of, like th this group has like pretty international appeal, but it was like called like Made in China. And, it, and like that rap is all in Mandarin. And sometimes you get other stuff, right? Like there are times where you get rappers who will will cross those lines. But I think that there's pressure um to be more patriotic in rapping like the, the show got a lot of criticism for that and because of that there was a shift to more mandarin mm -hmm. made in china they they were a group or a uh, like a collective of artists or um so no that was the name of one of their songs uh -huh. um and i cannot remember off the top of my head the name of the group yeah, yeah. okay i was yeah. not able to find mr wheezy online can you say something about his work yeah. So I think probably because like I only found him for two reasons. One is that I, I have a, a colleague who studies um, local Shanghainese language and, and she she pointed him out to me. Um, the other is that like I found his recordings on um, something similar to SoundCloud. Right. Like it's it's a Chinese version of something similar to SoundCloud. Mm -hmm. um, so he's I don't as far as I can tell, he's not like 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 making lots of records that people are buying that I know of anyway um or when I sort of looked into him several years ago um but what what I what I liked about him a lot is that he's very explicitly rapping about how much he loves Shanghai um and and um there's a lot of sort of like nostalgia there's a lot of references to local Shanghainese food and local Shanghainese architecture and these kinds of things um but he he's pretty explicit um, that that he does not think that there is a hierarchy between the national language and Shanghainese. Sometimes he denigrates the national language, um, but mm. a lot of times he's just sort of like pronouncing a love of Shanghainese. And while I don't think he's really super famous or influential, um, I think his linguistic identity strikes to a lot of what I hear from other Fangyan speakers, that 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 hierarchy really bothers them, um, and that there are things about Mandarin that don't capture who they are and, and how they think of themselves, not just as like Shanghainese people or Cantonese people, but like as Chinese people, right? That these are that this is integral to a Chinese identity, um, not just a local one that is subsidiary to the national one. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, voices such as his continue to be uh, tolerated, even as, you know, there's sort of been closing political space in China under um, under yeah. Xi Jinping. This yeah. Past so, yeah. So this to me is is there's sort of an interesting thing happening here. Right. Um, in the sense that on the one hand, there is closing political space for dissent. Um, on the other hand, this seems to be one of the areas where like 
certain kinds of dissent are tolerated, right? Um, so to me, when I look at the hegemony of Mandarin and the denigration of local languages, I'm like, this is very clearly, to me anyway, a result of what happens when you have an authoritarian government that wants to push one kind of patriotic identity, because when you are the primary driver of a particular national identity, that that gives you a lot of power, right? That 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 there's a real power there. And so I see that. Um, so to me, that that's very, that's like sort of like, like insidiously true. Um, I don't think that if a person put that statement in Chinese on Weibo, that that would be able to be circulated very easily. That said, I do think there's a lot of space for people saying like, hey, I want to speak Cantonese, right? Like, I, I care about this language. Um, I want to, I, um, and, and in fact, there is a lot of space for that. Um, is one of the interesting things I, I spend um, a lot of time talking to advocates in the United States and in, in Europe of the Cantonese speaking diaspora um, who really want to focus on the preservation of Cantonese. And this is one of those spaces where they find solid, it's very hard for activists to find solidarity in the diaspora in their counterparts in the mainland. And this is one of those areas where you do find some solidarity. Um, where it becomes difficult is when it gets particularly tied to like the protests in Hong Kong, then it becomes- Yes, yes. Yeah. But if it's just sort of like Cantonese is a beautiful language and we can preserve it, um, there's there's space for that, I think, in China. Um, and um, and you see that in a lot of spaces. Yeah. Oh, well, as you just said, Cantonese took on a certain subversive element with the Hong Kong protests. Yes. You mentioned in your book um, a song by the Hong Kong band Beyond, mm -hmm. which you call Boundless Oceans, Vast Sky. Although I've also seen it rendered as under a vast sky. I assume it's the same song. Yes. So uh, this song in the Cantonese language kind of became, or Cantonese Fun Yang, kind of became a, uh, a an, an anthem of the 2014 Umbrella Revolution in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. So can you say something about this? And tell me, can this song actually be heard on the mainland as well, either today or back in 2014? Yeah, no, so it's a really popular song. Um, and so, and and this, you'll see this happen sometimes where there are songs that will gather a particular sort of political connotation. Um, that's an example of one of them. I also heard it in 2019 um, in those, in the big protests in 2019 in Hong Kong. Um, another example, and this is, I, I admit, I just like absolutely love this song. It's called Iwu Soyo. Um, and it is, it's by Tsui Jian. Um, it was played and very prominently sort of like latched onto in 1989 at the Tiananmen Square protest. Mm -hmm. And like Tsui Jian is still going around singing that song. It's still around. So like there are some songs that like its context gets erased. So right, like if, if somebody wanted to post um, like um, the um, beyond songs in um, on Chinese social media, that would be fine. But if they wanted to post that and then write like, go Hong Kongers, that would get taken down, right? So if, as long as it gets sort of robbed of its of its um, of its political context, these songs are quite popular um, among Cantonese speakers. Uh, it's a good song, honestly. Um, I listen to it just kind of like jam to it for fun. Um, it's a great song. Now there are some songs that I think are difficult to rob of their contexts. Um, the, one of the examples that I know was in 2019. Um, one of the protest songs in Hong Kong was a Cantonese translation of "Do You Hear the People Sing" from Les Mis. 
Um, and on uh, Chinese yes. social media, you couldn't even find instrumental versions of that song. Um, so sometimes there are songs where it's like, they're like, we can't even. And if you've ever listened to the lyrics of, do we hear, do you, do you hear the people sing? It's real hard to erase a political context from that song. Um, and it's also not a, it's 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 a it's an it's an English language song, right? And so it's like, well, you'd only be posting this if you were really trying to say something political. So that one I find is harder to do. Maybe that's different now. Maybe you can't actually listen to instrumental versions of "Do You Hear the People Sing." But mm-hmm. um, to your original question, yeah, you do hear that song in in China a lot, even today. Yeah. Well, uh-huh. I mean, I, to be fair, I have not been in mainland China for a couple of years, but yeah. I've not. But generally speaking, people tag me in news when things like that get censored, and I haven't heard of anything of that getting taken down. Okay, what was the song that you mentioned that was associated with the 1989 protests? So it's called Iwu Soyo. I'll be nothing to my name. That's how the English. Nothing to my name, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. By Kui Jiang. Yes. So the C would be pronounced like a so so Cui Jian is how we would pronounce that his name. Thank you. No problem. <laughs> uh, and I assume that song would not be, that is on YouTube, but I would imagine it would not be available uh, on the internet in China. No, it is. It's all over the place. Um, oh, yeah? And it's, yeah, and it's mostly, be, partly because Tsui Jian himself has sort of like disavowed its relationship to 1989. So ah. they still let him sing it all the time. I, I feel like I when I see him sing it, I get a little sad because um, he was such a cool rocker in the 80s. And now like he's, I think like he doesn't look as cool when he's singing it like in a way that seems complicit um, with state narratives. Um, but no, mm-hmm. absolutely. He's just like, no, it's just a love song. I don't know. It's not about politics mm-hmm. at all. I can't help how people see it. Right. So it's you can't talk about its association with 1989 in China, but you can absolutely listen to that song. In fact, there's probably a video that some of my students at some point took in 2017 when I led study abroad of me singing that on stage with like a band at some bar. Um, so yeah, oh, no, it's absolutely still okay. Around. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I understand that he was filling stadiums back in the 1980s, but he kind of um, he never really got into trouble. But he would he kind of became uh, persona non grata for a while after 1989. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, his career was um, taken down a notch and he was kind of reduced to the hotel circuit. Yeah. Yeah. But, yo, that song's still really famous um, and mm-hmm. still very much heard in China. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, OK, you write about the uh, the Hong Kong cartoonist, Ato, <laughs> who created what seems to be a kind of a, um, a graphic textbook called Illustrated Cantonese. Uh, I was wondering if you talk a little bit about uh, about his work, and I'm curious is um, if you know that whether this has actually made it to uh, to mainland Guangdong as as well as to Hong Kong. I mean, honestly, I I don't know. Um, I've never tried to find his books in Guangzhou, um, so I, I'm not entirely sure. Um, he is he um, his illustration. So that book is not explicitly political, but he as a figure is. Um, he's not subtle um, in what he thinks about the Communist Party. Um, so again, I, I don't know if that book was available. And then once he started to be really explicitly political, it started to get censored or for it never even made it because of who he is and what he stands for. Um, I don't have that information. Um, but yes, he is He is very, he's not only just pro-Cantonese, he is also very explicitly anti-Chinese Communist Party. And he's still uh, doing his work today? Um, he's, as far as I know, and I'm, I'm a little bit wary of, um, of, 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 of spreading too much information about him. Um, but as far as I know, he is keeping a rather low profile and I believe he has fled Hong Kong. 
mm-hmm. um, because I, and, I and yeah. His book, Illustrated Cantonese, is it available uh, outside of Hong Kong at all, either in mainland China or in the West? Oh, I believe you can order it on Amazon. I haven't uh-huh. tried. I have a copy of it, but I bought it in a Hong Kong bookstore a while ago. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I would imagine you could buy it. I, I'm not totally sure, um, but I don't know about China. And it's entirely in Chinese characters or? Uh... So it's more of a, it's, I mean, it's, it's, there are, there are English translations of various Cantonese colloquialisms um, and then he illustrates them. It's really uh-huh. a charming book. I highly recommend it if you can oh, get great. it. Great. Yes. All right. In uh, in 2010, uh, there were actually protests in Guangzhou yes. under the slogan "Save Cantonese." So, yes. what what sparked this, and uh, what what ultimately became of this movement? Yeah. So, what sparked it was that in um, Guangdong, um, or in in the city of Guangzhou, um, the uh, the broadcasting network wanted to reduce their broadcasts in Cantonese and replace them with more Mandarin television offerings. Um, and there was a real protest. So, when I say that, I think that like, this was a decade ago. But when I say that there's space for for activism or dissent against like Mandarin hegemony, this is a good example of that. Um, because there was a there was a big protest, right, about um, Cantonese television offerings being switched over to Mandarin. Um, and the result of that is both good news and sad news. <laughs> um, so the good news is that they conceded, they didn't change it. The bad news is, is they did a few years later. <laughs> um, ah. So rather than explicitly doing this very quickly, they kind of like sneakily did it later on over the course of a few years. Um, so my understanding is that um, their ultimate goal of, of Mandarin to Cantonese ratio programming is about what they wanted it to be. Um, but it just, they did it over the course of a few years so as to not attract quite as much attention. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, certainly uh, the political space has closed very dramatically in China since 2010. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, your work is questioning, you know, the whole concept of uh, of nation as based on a single hegemonic version of one language in favor of a more pluralistic or multicultural conception, mm-hmm. which you call uh, alternative Chinese ness. And you write that, you know, such ideas are gaining currency in the field of critical Han studies. Uh, where is this field developing? Is it actually within China or within the Chinese diaspora or or both? I mean, so this is a really a field of scholarship, right? So this is, I think, happening in the academy more than anywhere else. And right. um, I, to the best of my knowledge, um, the um, and and there's sort of like there's also a a kind of like an another field of studies which is like Chineseness studies, and that is really interested in sort of looking at the meaning of of what it means to be Chinese outside of the context, the political context of China. So critical Han studies is sort of looking at the power of the Han ethno-racial identity within China, right? Whereas Chineseness studies is sort of looking at the making of what Chineseness means outside of China. Um, Although there's some really interesting overlap, I think, between these these two fields. Um, So for critical Han studies, um, I, 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 I don't think this is an exclusively Western Academy field. 
Um, I know that there are scholars in China who are interested in sort of the seminal works of critical Han studies. Um, there's an edited volume called Critical Han Studies. Um, there are scholars from mainland China who contributed to that volume. Um, so I don't think that this is an exclusively sort of like Western Academy field. That said, um, there are, I think, ways in which we can interrogate the the way that like Han as an ethnicity or as a, as a race or however you want to sort of think about it, um, the constructedness of it, I think that there are ways in which you can do that more easily outside of China than within it. Um, and the reason is, is because when we're talking about the constructedness of an of, of sort of race and ethnicity, we're talking about power. Um, and so while I think it is possible for scholars in mainland China to talk about historically, like this is this is how the term Han has evolved. This is what it meant in the 19th century. Right. This is this is how we thought of it. When you bring that up to the present and talk about sort of like the to me, what is the reality of, of Han supremacy within the People's Republic of China in the sense that like the Han ethno-racial group has much, much, much more power Right. Um, and there's a real power hierarchy when we're talking about ethnicity and race in China. That is easier, I think, for scholars outside of China to talk about and interrogate um, than it is within China, because that is an explicit criticism of the government. Right. Mm -hmm. OK, and you know, your book doesn't really touch that much on the, the non-Han minority languages within the People's Republic, such as Uyghur and Tibetan. W where do they fit in? to this notion of alternative Chineseness, or or do they? I understand it's kind of a controversial question. It is. And it's and and like I think that there's a I get asked about this a lot. And it's one of those things where um I think maybe if I were to write the book again, I might have dealt with that absence differently than I did, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um and the reason is is because when I talk about sort of alternative Chineseness, I am really interested in people who identify both as patriotic citizens of China and people who see themselves as ethnically Chinese, but want to be able to have that sort of identity, that twinned national ethnic identity in a way that is not prescribed by one language, one identity, one form of what that means, right? And that's what I'm interested in. Now, um, the one area in my book where I think this gets a little more complicated is when I talk about Hong Kong, where the question of being a citizen of China gets really complicated, right? Um, um, especially in the last few years. Now, when we're talking about minoritized populations such as Uyghurs and Tibetans, I think there's sort of two ways to answer this question, right? Which is the first is, how do Uyghurs and Tibetans see themselves? I think for the most part, they know that they like are citizens of China because they can't, there's not really another place for them to be citizens of, right? But that doesn't translate to the same thing as like actively wanting to be a Chinese patriot, which I don't think a lot of them feel, right? And they definitely do not know, call themselves ethnically Chinese, right? So I don't know that they would necessarily want to be a part of this reimagining patriotism because to them, reimagining patriotism still means sort of being complicit in a government that, um, depending on sort of which group we're talking about, has either oppressed them or actively colonized them, right? Um, and so, um, so yeah, so that's, I think, um, why I don't think that that necessarily fits. Um, that said, I think that there are people in China who often do actively want to contextually include them in what it means to be Chinese. So you sometimes get sense where these populations are really racialized. It's like they are 
backwards, terrorists, separatists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Which is meant to racialize and oppress them, right? On the other hand, sometimes you get these like, oh, we are all the same, right? We're all Chinese people. You'll you'll hear the term like Tongbao, which just kind of means like of the same, like brothers in arms, right? Like they are our brothers, right? Um, a sense of shared brotherhood. Um, in particular, a good example of this is um, it, just a, a few weeks ago, um, there was a fire in Xinjiang where sure. 10 people, yeah, it was horrible, yeah. where, where 10 people died um, in an apartment building because they couldn't really easily escape their apartments because of COVID restrictions. And you saw an outpouring of grief throughout China for, for their lives. Um, which I, which is, which is, which is real. Like, I don't want to sort of say that that's not authentic. I think that that grief really is authentic. Um, but you heard them then talked about sort of like our Tongbao, right? Our Uyghur Tongbao who are, who are, um, they are our brothers and that's why we care. Right. Um, and I think my guess is that if you are Uyghur, there's a real complexity there. Right. Cause on the one hand, it's like, well, the Han majority is finally speaking to our oppression here, but it's only the oppression that they intimately understand and not the oppression that they didn't care about a few years ago. Right. Mm -hmm. Or like all the other ways in which Uyghurs are racialized and minoritized and, and, and oppressed. Right. Um, and so, um, so the, the, that kind of question gets really, I, I don't even know if it's complicated, um, except for that, um, I think if we're going to talk about alternative Chineseness, we should use that term for people who really want to ascribe to the general sense of patriotism and ethnic affiliation um, that that ascribes to, rather than the people who have been forced to take on those kinds of, of sort of national monikers. Right. Well, if I could just, uh, you know, throw in my own two cents, I think, you know, one of the reasons that, um, you know, Beijing has been taking such a heavy hand with the Uyghurs and Tibetans is that they, uh, you know, fear that, you know, there some kind of solidarity could emerge between these, uh, you know, racialized um, or minoritized peoples and the, uh, you know, the Han majority. And yeah. maybe, you know, the so-called blank paper revolution that we just saw uh, you know, was the, the beginnings of, uh, you know, some kind of solidarity actually emerging between the, the Han and the Uyghurs. Yeah. And I, I think that that's true. I think that there's a real fear of separatism from the state. I do think, however, that it's, it's worth keeping in mind that I think Uyghurs are intimately aware that when we're talking about the oppression that they faced, it's not just state oppression, right? That they know that there is a Gaihan majority where their allyship is very contextual. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I read a really wonderful article, I believe, I don't want to state the author in case I'm wrong, <laughs> um, but um, that essentially talked about what it's like to be a Uyghur and see the white paper revolution and saying that like, we're glad this is happening, but we also know that the way the white paper revolution works is that the viewer can put whatever message they want on that piece of paper. And when you are of the Han majority, that message can be something that creates solidarity. But if you are Uyghur, that message could very easily be turned into something like terrorism or mm. like these very, like like very bad faith racialized arguments about what Uyghurs actually think and care about, right? And so it's like, this is not something that's safe for us because, because of the way that we are racialized, we cannot be seen as ambiguously protesting because we know how that will be interpreted by the Han majority. Mm -hmm. um, or we so should that, make clear that the, you know, the, the so-called blank paper protest where um, comes from this uh, tactic that was taken up of actually holding up pieces of blank paper 
yes. as a kind of a ironic or self-referential protest against censorship. Yes, yes. Yeah. So it's 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 both sort of saying that like I don't like I can't say what I want to say, but like you all know what I'm trying to say, yeah, right? Yeah, like it's yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. combination of those two things, right? Um, yeah. All right. So finally, uh, uh, if I'm not putting you on the spot here, can you maybe say a few words as to how uh, you know these concepts uh, can be applied more universally beyond the the concept of China and uh, you know what this work has to say about the whole notion of the, the nation state and nationality in the contemporary world. Yeah. So I, I think that the first thing that I, I'd want to stress, right, is that I think that um, like linguistic oppression is real <laughs> um, and that we should be cognizant of how linguistic oppression affects um, all different kinds of minoritized populations, right? Um, and so um, I hear a lot of sort of analogies to places like India, right? Um, to places even like Tibet, right? Where there is one sort of like hegemonic Tibetan language and all other Tibetan languages are, are like doubly oppressed, right? Um, and so there's a lot of spaces where we can talk about linguistic loss um, another place may be like Hawaii, right, or indigenous languages in the United States, that, that linguistic loss is a real kind of violence. Um, and that we and that it's also worth thinking about how and why um, languages survive, right. So one of the things that I, I got told a lot when I was doing research for this was it's like, well, urbanization like these languages are going to die anyway, right? Um, so what are you going to do, right? And I, and I, and I, to me, the sort of main thing that I'd, I'd love people to take from this is that um, like, ling like language death is a choice, right? We, we, languages are preserved due to actions that we take. Um, and there are people who have more power to do that than others, right? Um, governments have an enormous amount of power here, right? Um, I think about like elite educational institutions have a lot of power here. Media has a lot of power here. Um, but we do too, right? Like we all have choices in the ways that we the languages that we speak and the language that we want to preserve and how we want to use them, right? And so I want us to be cognizant of the power dynamics here while also recognizing that these things just don't naturally or passively happen, right? Um, and and that's, so that's the first thing that I'd hope people would take from this. The other is that I, I, I think about this in a Chinese context in particular, because there's a tendency, I think, to think of China as being really homogenous. Um, and that 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 essentially like there's a list of things that make you Chinese and those are really universal across like a billion people. Um, and so I, I want to push back against that, which I think is a pretty orientalist narrative, but also recognize this idea that while I'm trying to push is that people are really contesting what it means to be Chinese in real time, right? That people are like, it means this, it means that. And that when we think about, say, what it means to be an American or what it means to be Mexican or what it means to be British, right? That those are always being contested as well. And that we shouldn't think of like, like uh, sometimes I'll do this activity in my classes with my students where I'll be like, well, what makes you American? And they're like, well, it's objectively this and it's objectively that. It's like, no, we create these identities. And we do through the through contestations, right? Through through debates, um, through different people seeing it in different ways. All right, when you talk about your class, you're uh, a, a professor of history at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. Have I got that yes. right? Yes, you do. Uh-huh. All right, so, and your book came out um, last year? 
Uh, two years ago. So it came out in two years ago now. All right. Yeah, so I know. Gosh, it doesn't feel like that. <laughs> so uh, what's what, what's next in your okay. uh, in your scholarship? Um, I'm working on a new book um, on on a gender in Hong Kong um, and, and sort of looking at the the, the history of, of women's participation um, in social movements in Hong Kong. Wow. Fascinating. Um, I'm excited about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I am also the, I'm a co-director of our women and gender studies program at Trinity. Um, and I, I did some work with gender studies in graduate school and I'm excited to write a gender studies book because as much as I love writing this book about language, I didn't get to really dig into gender very much. And so um, I'm excited about that. Um, and I'm excited to spend some time in Hong Kong. That was the the first place in Asia I ever went uh, as a 20 year old and and I have sort of a, a soft spot for for Hong Kong. And so I'm excited to spend some time telling stories there. Great. Well, when the new book comes out, definitely send us a copy and we'll have to do this again. That sounds wonderful. This has been so <laughs> fascinating. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for doing a really deep read of yeah, this Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what we do here in the Counter Vortex. Yes. Where we've been speaking with um, Gina Ann Tam, author of Dialect and Nationalism in China, 1860 to uh, 1960, available on Amazon and all that, I assume. So people want to get into it can, can get a copy. Yes. And uh, Gina, thank you so much. It's been really fascinating. And uh, let's stay in touch. Absolutely. My pleasure. Okay. This has been Bill Weinberg with our guest, Gina and Tam, on the Counter Vortex. You can check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance and rant on you next time.